listening to Rising from the Ashes. literally means straight thinking or straight teaching or straight beliefs. So like if you think like an orthodontist straightens your teeth and doxy has to do with uh-huh. teaching or belief. And so, you know, so the people who are orthodox, they think they have the right teaching. Well, who doesn't think they have the right teaching? If you don't think it's right, you're going to change your teaching, right? So it matters. Do you have an army to back up your version of right and wrong? Um, and once Constantine converts to whatever extent that he does convert, you know, he includes Christianity as part of his religious repertoire, sort of, and he legalizes it um, in 313. Then you've got the the imperial army to, you know, that's got a vested interest in what's the right t- kind of Christian, and that's when you get um, you get the Council of Nicaea in 325. The Council of Nicaea in 325. Life is so wonderful and full of all of the wonderful (laughs) googly goodness of existence. Uh, With all the fun, warming words aside, today we have an interview uh, 
with Maeve Callan. Diving into the Templars, but keeping it Irish. When we found her work, we and looked at the title of her book, and it covered the topics of ancient Ireland, mystic Ireland, and the Templars. It was kind of a no-brainer to try to get her on the show, and she came. So here we are. It's a great conversation, a classic for the books. And everybody, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to join us further for the conversation and have any comments uh, about this episode and want to state what you enjoyed about it, you should join us on the Telegram group chat. It is a great place on the social medias to connect with us and engage and make other friends, honestly. Made plenty of friends, (laughs) actual friends of people that I love and enjoy on Telegram. Sorry, there's a cat being in the way. Oh, goodness. Well, just doing his thing, his Beltane thing. That's cloudy boy. Anyways, uh, you guys are wonderful. Join us on Telegram if you want to support us and to help pay the podcasting bills. You know, all the little editing softwares and all that fun stuff. You can join us over on Patreon. Uh, three bucks a month will get you access, wonderful access to hours and hours of content. Uh, Dan has a bunch of brand new shows on there that I love and people love and enjoy. And you get sneak peek episodes on there and other fun stuff. So if you want to join us on that, three bucks a month, go ahead and hit that link down here in the description. And email us. We have listeners from all over the world, and that makes us happy. We want to engage Hit us up with an email, uh, you know, with something interesting. How you found the show. I'm very curious how Rising from the Ashes got onto the player today. How did it get into your hands today at this moment? Very curious about that. Something that makes me very curious, you see. Very curious. Anyway, my friends, email us. Uh, click all the links in the description. Have fun. Use your thumbs. You know, hitch a ride to the galaxy and then come back and smash those links with your wonderful thumbs there. You see? Yes. Without further ado, we are going to dive right into this conversation, this interview with Maeve Callan.
from the from ashes. My ashes. I'm Dan Unaki Dan. I'm here Hi. with Hello. my co-host, Roman. What's up, Roman? Hello. Good to be here. Pleasure yet again. Been, another fantastic talk. I'm excited. It's been a while. We've forgotten our roles. Andy, Sage, how's it going, man? Hey, doing well. Glad to be on the show tonight. We got, ex we got an exciting guest with us today, and it's going to be fun. Looking forward to it. Yeah, man. Me as well. So we are here today with Maeve Callen, and she has written a book called The Wit or The Templars, The Witch, and The Wild Irish. And so we're going to be delving into that today. How are you doing today, Maeve? I'm doing great. How about y'all? Doing well. Excellent. Excellent. It's been a while since we've done a show together. We've all been kind of doing shows here and there and there and there, but uh, haven't been together for a while. So we forgot how to do it. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's deep it's deep in the blood. I I love the tantalizing title that you gave this book, "The Templars, the Witch, and the Wild Irish." It seems like if you don't really like look at history or like you know kind of know these topics, you would be like. How are these associated? You know, like the Templars, you know, like the witches yeah, and the wild Irish. Um, but I love that you put it all together in a book. And I just, I mean, I just want to ask why, what, what was that inspiration? Well, um, I mean, this is uh, a revised version of my dissertation and with, with my dissertation for, for my PhD at Northwestern university, um, it was initially called, it was a quote from a, from a line from a historical document that said, um, no, there's never been, um, there's been no such art in this land referencing witchcraft and heresy. And so part of my argument is that these people who are called heretics aren't really heretics. Um, and so, but say to no such art in this land is a little, it's not as catchy as uh, the Templars, the Witches, and the Wild Irish, which to me reminds me of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And um, mm -hmm. also um, there's a good, well, there's a prominent study of medieval um, witchcraft prosecutions called the the magician, the witch, and the law. Um, so it's mm. sort of an homage to to those as well. But but because the heresy trials in Ireland are falling in these three categories, mm. you've got the Templars, and that was an offshoot of a trial that really really occurred in France. But what happened in France at that time happened throughout Western Christendom because France was that powerful. Um, and then you have this witch trial, which is so fascinating. I know you're more interested in the Templars, but... No, we um, like that, too. <laughs> you like, like that, too. <laughs> and especially because, um, the, you know, we, we're very familiar with, like, the witch persecutions throughout Western Europe, and then, you know, you've got the what happened in Salem as well and some other places in the colonial, United, what becomes the United States. But the, this witch trial is really the first of its kind. It's like sets a perfect example, if, if such a thing could exist, um, of what's going to happen like 150 years later. And it doesn't ever really happen in Ireland, um, apart from this like test case, if you will. I'm not actually saying it was a test case, but if you believe in conspiracy theories, like this is the witch case for you. Like they were trying it out in a you know marginal outpost of Western Christendom before they were like, okay, can we make this work? 
Um, and again, I'm not saying that happened, but if you're inclined to those kinds of things, it's it's that kind of case. And then you've got these these uh, ethnic hostilities where they're they're trying to say the Irish aren't really Christian, so that they can take their land and um, and they they actually try to call a crusade against the Irish, even though the Irish had been Christian for centuries longer than the people who were then calling him calling them non Christians. Um, so that's so a... since the cases fall in those three categories, that's why. I went with that. That's, I mean, geez, that's that's <laughs> that's amazing. Like a lot of people have been like, oh, oh, no, you know, it sounded good. I thought it'd be catchy, <laughs> and that actually has an incredibly uh, deep roots to it. Um, but not to skate too far away from the, the witch trial uh, talk uh, and all of that political scandal, if you will. I feel like inevitably, you know, as like to get to where we are in modern society. Jeez, I'm sorry, uh, talking politics and everything, that there's always going to be like these things that really stretch the limits to, to expand what the, the, the reach of politics are going to be. And um, I felt like, like you said, like that might have been one of those cases, you know, like in order to stretch this new style of policy, this new plan to get a broader reach, um, you have to kind of like stretch it out and see what works. And then people fight back, they don't, or they don't have a choice. And in, in the case of the, the witch burnings, um, and the millions and mi the thing with that and me, uh, and I think we all have a lot to say on the witch trials in general in this group. But for <laughs> me, uh, when I started looking at it, I, I started realizing not only was it that, that people were dying, unfortunately, and a lot of women, and um, Giordano Bruno, also one of my favorite historical characters. I was uh, just where he was executed, like uh, a little over, well, almost exactly two months ago. So, yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, you should write I a mean, book on him. I mean, it's solemn. I'm just kidding. But uh, he's, <laughs> he's like, he's, he has, oh, anyway, anyways, uh, all, the thing is, is like, there was so, it's not only the beautiful lives that were lost, all of that interesting deep ancient knowledge that lied with those people that was very sacred and possibly very powerful is gone or at mm -hmm. least hidden somewhere and that to me is very very fascinating mm -hmm. absolutely i mean I, I don't actually think alice kittler was a witch um or that she was i mean she was definitely or we can't say she was definitely anything. We the only account we have is from the person who was trying to kill her, you know. So so it's a it's a biased yeah. source, but it's it's probable that she knew how to heal people because you have to know how to heal people when you live in the Middle Ages, otherwise you don't last, you know. But but some of the things that were were being accused of her um, that she's you know taking dead baby body parts and and mixing them up to create these kind of um, potions that would be poisons. That's highly improbable, but that she actually did have some powders and things for to heal people. I would say most people probably did, you know, especially women where that healing went um, to the women. And so many of the witches or the people who were executed as witches were healers and midwives. So it's, it's not just like spiritual or supernatural power. It's Alchemist. basic medicine. <laughs> What's that? Sorry, Roman. A lot of, a lot of alchemists were murdered as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unless you're working specifically with like a royal court somewhere and doing their 
things. Right, Ooh. and even then, if somebody turns on you, if the, the, the you know the winds of power should change, then Oop. you're no longer protected. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, we we love the witch talk around here. We we we've talked about witches and wizards and all those things a bunch. Um, but one of the interesting things you said is that the Irish were presumably Christian before the English even showed up. Mm-hmm. So how how is it that uh, the Irish were already kind of Christianized before kind of like the spread of all of that and like the whole Reformation aspect, you know, and the church coming in and converting mm-hmm. everybody? How was how was that? So so the Reformation is in the 16th century, and yeah, yeah. Um, and Patrick, uh, who I mean you know you you've probably all celebrated St. Patrick's Day in one way, shape, or form, and, and, you, and you have an association with Patrick. Um, we don't, you know, there's a lot of legends about Patrick and, and the idea that, like, Ireland was purely pagan, then Patrick showed up, put his, uh, you know, drove his staff into the island, all the snakes left, and all of a sudden the entire island was Christian. That's a really powerful um, image that a lot of people have, and it's, you know, obviously... Um, Probably not accurate, <laughs> but but he, he is the one person who's like an early missionary in Ireland that we have his own writings and his writings survive. And so since his writings survive, they sort of cast him into this superhero saint. Um, but so far as we know, Patrick was active in the fifth century. Uh, establishing centers in Ireland. And there, there's evidence of um, Christianity in Ireland, at least since the fifth century, independent of Patrick as well. So that's the fifth century. And then the Reformation is the 16th century. Now, the English, um, you know, what do we mean by English? As you were saying earlier, uh, I think, Dan, it was you, like, who are these English people? Because we, we use the name English to refer to so many different people. Um, and where they can where that name comes from are the Germanic tribes that came over to Britain as Rome was leaving Britain. Um, so again, this is a fifth century kind of thing and they are Germanic pagans and they stay pagan until the eighth century at least. So you've got, which is not to say that an individual German uh, pagan didn't convert to Christianity, but um I mean, not, no, I said the 8th century. It's actually around 600. So it's the beginning of the 7th century, beginning of the 7th century. Um, so the Irish have converted since the 5th century. The, the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes, who then become the English, convert in starting in the 7th century. So the Irish have them beat by, you know, about two centuries to begin with. And then um, in addition to when we think of the English, um, what when when we have the Norman conquest of England, which happens in 1066, that's when William the Conqueror, also known as William the Bastard, um, he comes from Normandy. Well, who were the Normans? The Normans were the Vikings who settled in northern France and converted to Christianity only in the 10th century. So when the English come to invade Ireland in the late 12th century, those are the Norman English who have converted only in the 10th century and only as part of the terms for getting part of France or in um, the beginning of the 7th century, whereas the Irish have been Christians since the 5th century. But the Irish Ireland was never part of Rome. And so uh, 
the kind of Christianity that developed there didn't have that Roman framework that set up, this is how we're going to be Christian. And so what mattered more to Irish Christianity, so one of the great things about Rome, uh, Rome, and, and you can like it or not like it, but it's effective if you're going to organize, is how territorial everything was, how like jurisdictional. And so you already had a framework. Um, when the church merged with the state, they had uh, an already established bureaucracy, if you will, that they could just sort of take advantage of. Whereas in Ireland, how Christianity really, the, the kind of networks weren't weren't like geographical so much as they were relational, you know? So like one of you's in Hawaii, one of you's in California, you have these connections with each other. You're a network, but your neighbors might not be part of your network. They'd be part of somebody else's network because they were influenced by somebody else, you know? So it's more relational. Um, and there were all sorts of like aberrations that happened in Ireland because it didn't have this Roman framework. Um, there are aberrations that happen everywhere. Nobody conforms completely to what authority wants. Um, but then you also have in the 11th century, starting in the 11th century, it's something that's known as the Gregorian reform that's associated with Pope Gregory the seventh. That's why it gets its name, but it starts before him and continues long after. And that's when Rome is really trying to throw its weight around and say, we all have to do this our way. Um, and it was expedient for... Uh, the Normans to sort of take advantage of that Gregorian reform and try to influence it as well. So there, there are there. Ireland was Christian. It was Catholic Christian. They, you know, adhered to the papacy as as the supreme authority of, of Christianity and all that. But there were certain things that were different, and they were also like out on the perimeter of you know on the periphery of Europe, um, and they weren't very powerful. And they weren't very organized. They didn't have one central king. Um, you did have something called the Ardri, the High King, but he it was more like a, I mean, it wasn't just a figurehead, but it it wasn't somebody. It wasn't a centralized state, whereas when William conquers England, that's a centralized state, you know, and they become super powerful. In France, that's a centralized state. And so the Pope wants to make nice with those people more than the Irish. So they're willing to go along with those kind of power schemes, and they're willing to let religion be used as like a cover story of why um, the English are going to save the Irish and make them Christian, even though they were already Christian. Never heard that before. <laughs> but yeah, so so they're Gaul, they're Gauls then. The um, well, Gaels, right? their Gauls refers more to the French. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, and and not the Normans. Like, the Normans are Norse. They're the Vikings who settled. Right. But yeah, the Irish yeah. are Gaels. So the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons are all Germanic. Yes. Okay. Mm, the Jutes are German. I would think that that was uh, another name for Jewish, but I'm glad so. I'm wrong. <laughs> All right, where, what is that? What does that word mean? What is jute? What is a? I, I mean, that's an interesting question. I just know it's applied to sort of the the third major tribe, but the one that doesn't get as much attention as the Anglo's, the Angles and the Saxons. They're the ones you, you, we usually say. Anglo-Saxon, right, to refer mm-hmm. to these people, but the Jutes were yeah. there too. Um, but it's it's the name of their group. I'm not sure exactly where it comes from. Excellent. Uh, I want to get into a little bit about like a heretic. What is a heretic, and how does that play 
into like pretty much it like establishes everything that happens from that point on through the whole like history of of the northern of Europe in that area like it, it starts a big thing because that's inevitably what leads up to the reformation right and Right. I mean, to Catholics, if they're going to be hardliners, they could just say Protestants are just heretics, right? But Protestants say it about Catholics, too. I mean, it's 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 one of the things I love most about uh, heresy is what it actually means, which is choice. And um, a heretic uh, is someone who chooses to believe the wrong thing, right? Whereas orthodoxy <laughs> literally means straight thinking or straight teaching or straight belief. So like, if you think like an orthodontist straightens your teeth and doxy has to do with uh -huh. teaching or belief. And so, you know, so the people who are orthodox, they think they have the right teaching. Well, who doesn't think they have the right teaching? If you don't think it's right, you're going to change your teaching, right? So it matters. Do you have an army to back up your version of right and wrong? Um, and once Constantine converts to whatever extent that he does convert, you know, he includes Christianity as part of his religious repertoire, sort of, and he legalizes it um, in 313. Then you've got the the imperial army to, you know, that's got a vested interest in what's the right kind of Christian. And that's when you get, um, you get the Council of Nicaea in 325, and that's... Um, one of the things we're most tasked with is to come up with the Bible, because we have a whole bunch of texts that say who Jesus was and why he mattered. And then in addition, we have, you know, what, what Christians are going to call the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. Um, there are so many different versions of these stories about who God is and what we should do about it. How are we going to know what's right and what's wrong? So one of the key things about the Council of Nicaea in 325 is we need to come up with what's called a canon. and But it takes them another 70 years. And in the middle of that time, that's when they somebody um, who can't bring himself or herself, but probably himself, um, to destroy the books that they want destroyed, they bury it in the desert in Nagamadi in Upper Egypt. And this is where you, you get the Gnostic Gospels, which are just so fascinating. And And these are only the texts that have survived, and they didn't survive they they were almost all of them, not quite all of them, but almost all of them were completely unknown, except for if somebody referred to them to say that they were lies and they should be destroyed from the middle of the fourth century until right after World War II, when they were rediscovered. And it was revolutionary to understand how different people understood who Jesus was. Now, to the Orthodox, those people are just heretics. They're dangerous liars. They're going to destroy your soul. They need to be sh shut down. And... You know, they have the army to enforce that. So that's in the fourth century. Um, you know, that's before Ireland even hears about Christianity as far as we can we can tell. But this idea of, you know, there's one right way to be a Christian and the people with the biggest army get to decide what that is. Well, that's where the notion of heretic comes from. And so like when when the English want to invade and colonize Ireland, and they don't want to colonize Ireland, they want to conquer it. They want to do what they did to England. Um, but the Irish don't let them. Um, when they want to do that, they're not actually calling them heretics at that point. They are recognizing that they are in some, they don't, they, it's interesting to me because they don't use the word heretic, but they, and they recognize that they're Christian, but somehow they've lost that true Christianity. So they're essentially calling them heretics without using the word heretic. It's not until the 14th century that they start using the word heretic, which I find um, important. But 
it's really just a way of saying you're doing religion wrong and I'm going to use my army to force you or, you know, it, it might not be an army, mm. but it is armed power in mm. some way, you know, because you have, I'm sh as you're aware, the Inquisition, when people can say, um, I'm going to try you and see if you believe the right thing or the wrong thing. And if they decide that you believe the wrong thing and you refuse to renounce that wrong thing, then um, it's interesting. Again, the church doesn't kill you. They relax you, which is the opposite of being relaxed. You know, we think relaxation is good. Now, they relax you, meaning they let you, they hand you over to the secular power. And then the secular power kills you um, because the church can't have blood on its hand, even though the church obviously does have a lot of blood on its hands. But they're not the ones who actually kill heretics. They sort of um, outsource it to the to the government to it's do. Like so. Relay. So, again, we, but it's, oh, it's armed it's power. Relaxing. They, yeah. They relaxing. It yeah. Just, but it's X marks the spot of your of your eternal doom. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Wow. Or until that next step of the voyage. I wanted to say uh, I thought it was some. Uh, some fun word play is that I don't study orthodoxy. I study paradoxy. Because mm. it's all it's all convoluted. <laughs> it seems like a paradox. Yeah. Uh, were you speaking? I missed if you were speaking about the Nag Hammadi text. And those are the texts that were rediscovered, the Gnostic <laughs> text. Do you think that um, <clears throat> some of this earlier form of Christianity that was like blended, uh, if you will, with some of these ancient pagan ways of the... Um, of the Celts um, that was said to, we've talked to a couple authors who have, you know, like told us about the Shila Nagig and um, the Celts and the Druids and the ancient Irish Fae kind of blending with this new version of Christianity and always having this special attunement to its origin roots um, in, a, in a very unique way that makes Ireland what it is really, in my mm -hmm. opinion, you know, the fact that it was always able to, have its old cultural roots, even with Christianity coming and the classic motif of the Romans never made it to Ireland. They made it to England, but they never made it to Ireland and conquered. Now, do you think there were, well, two questions. Do you think they were practicing Gnosticism? And do you think that St. Patrick was potentially like an actual esoteric Christian, potentially? Um, and Two, what do you think it is about the energy itself and the folklore of Ireland that makes it what it is? And, and maybe that had some power, if so, of stopping the Roman power to getting there. Mm, interesting. Um, I'd say I so we have two writings from Patrick himself. Um, one is a letter to uh, a British like warlord, basically, who has um, attacked a, a recent ritual where there was um, new converts being baptized to Christianity. And um, so he realized what a great source of um, slaves that would be. It, it, they wouldn't be armed and they'd be distracted. And so he came over and um, and he's ostensibly Christian when he does this. Um, and so so Patrick is excommunicating him and trying to shame him and saying, give us, give us back the, the people you stole, basically. So that's one thing. And then the other one is... Um, known as his confession, which is, um, it's, it's kind of like an autobiography, but a super short one that's responding to particular issues. Um, and nothing in them suggests to me that he's Gnostic. Um, so I was just, just by raising Gnosticism, I'm talking about like where heresy comes from and it's a bigger issue than Ireland or any particular, it's, mm -hmm. it's like inherent in 
you know, in, I'd say any kind of thought system where somebody wants to police everybody else and get everybody to think just like they do. Um, and so that's what's going on with, with Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is in, is also much more, well, it's, it's complicated because we use the word Gnosticism to refer to a whole bunch of different kind of stuff, right? But I think if you look at, for example, like the Gospel of Thomas, which uh, there's significant evidence to suggest that the Gospel of Thomas is older than any of the other Gospels that's uh, in the Bible. And that uh, Thomas literally means twin. And what the person is claiming, the author, is that Jesus didn't come so that we could you know, as as John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever wow. believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And what you're supposed to do is fall down on your knees and worship Jesus as God um, in some sense or more, just so much better than you are and that you'll ever be and, and just hope that he'll help you out. Whereas Thomas is saying Jesus came as a teacher. Um, it's much more similar to Buddhism in a, in a lot of ways. And there are some interesting connections with India um, and that why Jesus taught this is so that for you to become a Christ as well, right? And so they are less about regulating what you think. Like one of the problems with Gnosticism is, or the challenges of Gnosticism, I should say, like if you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, and you know how um, in a lot of Bibles, when Jesus speaks, it's read. Um, and in the Gospel of John, it's all read because it's Jesus telling you, okay, I'm not just going to speak in parables and you get to figure out what the parable means. I'm going to tell you exactly how you need to understand the parable. I mean, part of the beauty of the parable is there's no one right answer. But in John, he's saying there is one right answer and you better get on my page, right? So someone like John is much more authoritarian, much more about you know controlling orthodoxy versus heresy, whereas someone like Thomas is like, you do? You? I mean, it's, I'm oversimplifying, you know, but it, it's, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to I don't, I mean, this might just be, sometimes I blurt when it's unnecessary, so I do apologize for that, because you were flowing, <laughs> very great, and, uh, but the T and the J, um, because, you know, writing and, and the gift of, of, of written word is, it's symbolic in many, many ways, right, you know, and, and it's, it's a flow of, some divine energy right like writing calligraphy right you know so but it's interesting that you that you have this kind of like uh motif of thomas and john one of them being like you know more authoritarian and the other being like maybe more feminine on the on mm. that aspect mm. and that one of them having a tail but both having the cross up top oh interesting I, yeah I that's that really interesting of, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. And I have to, like, I'm a teacher first and foremost. So if I see someone looks like they have a question or they want to say something, I will stop whatever I'm saying <laughs> and try to try to include you. So, um, but going back to your other question about um, Patrick and 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 Ireland itself and um, and the you know connections with, I mean, you didn't use the word nature, I don't think, but that is really central. Um, the celebration of nature and the understanding the natural world as one of the best ways you can know who God is. Um, I think that is very clear in what a lot of people call Celtic Christianity. And I'm not really comfortable with calling it Celtic Christianity because when people have like, they use the word Celts, they have a whole bunch of assumptions about that that might not apply. Um, but if by Celtic Christianity, you mean the Christianity that develops in Ireland, Scotland, 
and Wales and then parts of England <laughs> too, um, when the Irish are influencing it. And um, then I think it has validity as more than just a geographical term. And that is this, this absolute love of nature and this understanding um, that God is known through communing with nature. Uh, that is really important in, in Irish Christianity, which is what I know better than Scottish or Welsh or, um, but you still see that in Scottish and Welsh and you, and you can see that outside of there too, but I, I think it's particularly pronounced and I think it's important. Um, I mean, one of the things where I've gotten particular attention for is, um, the work I've done with saints, Irish saints, uh, who perform abortions. And to a lot of people, this is like, wait, what, you know, because like, you can only have one attitude about abortion if you're a Catholic, a lot of people think, right. And that's that it's, you know, murder of the innocents kind of thing. And, um, this, this attitude towards abortion, and it's representative of a lot of other attitudes that are there in medieval Irish Christianity, which are not there now, obviously. I mean, Ireland, you know, a few years ago, about five years ago, voted to to uh, to allow abortions to happen. And so there's been a lot of change in Ireland in the past five years. I mean, in fact, when I was just there, and I was there during Holy Week, among other times, I was there during Lent, and I had lived there in the 90s, and it's a totally different country now. I mean, it's so much more Catholic in the 90s. And, and now there's a lot of um, distancing from from Catholicism and almost like trying to undo uh, a, a lot of the Catholic identity. Um, but anyway, the, the form of Irish Catholicism that people tend to think of now is really more of Victorian 19th century kind of uh, Catholicism that was adopted in response to... Uh, English Protestantism in different ways. So like this, this repressive, I'll just call it, call it repressive. Just that version of Catholicism is very different from what you see in the medieval sources, um, which isn't to say you can't find things in the medieval sources that are analogous to it, but it's just not the dominant tone, the way it becomes the dominant tone, but it becomes the dominant tone in the 19th century. Um, so, and, and Ireland's going through a lot in the 19th century as well. So it's, People think like that's the eternal one kind of um, Catholicism uh, in Ireland, when actually the the medieval version of Catholicism is much richer, in my opinion. It's it's um, and it's I think it's much more female friendly. Um, it's much more uh, embracing nature and embracing the individual, and less about the institution. Um, which is again not to say that you won't find misogyny, you won't find an institutional um, authority and all that kind of stuff, but it's just a lot less pronounced in the medieval forms of Catholicism than in um, what then takes over Ireland in the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, do you know what kind of worship they were doing uh, for nature? Was it like the trees or the stars, the moon cycle, all of the above? Yeah, so I there's a particular passage I can send you where where it's it's told about um Patrick um and you know like I said about Patrick we have those two sources that he wrote but then he becomes this hero and they write all these things about Patrick and this is a 7th century biography of Patrick which is again still pretty early 7th century and um there's a story where these two women meet Patrick, uh, at a well, I think it is, you know, well, it's a great place for meeting women. And, um, <laughs> they, they ask, well, can you, can you tell me 
can you tell me about your God? And he goes on and he talks about the stars and the moon and the, and the rivers. And I mean, it's like, it is all of the above. Um, It's pretty short. uh, And, and people think like maybe that was because in the seventh century, Ireland was still, uh, Ireland obviously had been Christian for, for a couple of centuries by that point, but that doesn't mean everybody had converted all. It's not like Patrick came and flipped a switch and everybody's Christian. Um, You know, it's a process. And so this might be a memory of, well, what did pagans ask when they were starting to convert to, uh, and they they centered nature, and so the Christians would respond that God is the source of nature. And so when you look to the stars, when you look to the to the rivers and the sea, and when you look to the animals, and when you see all these things, that's really God, the power of God that you're seeing. I love that. Thank I love you. That answer. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Because I, I, I think a lot of times, you know, this this naturalism kind of aspect is kind of lost on. Uh, Christianity as a whole, because uh, usually, I, to me personally, I kind of um, associate paganism with natural uh, stuff, and, and and you know, uh, being with nature and everything, and and that sort of gets like hardcore, like blasphemized by the church during during this kind of time period. So it's it, it's really weird to me. Why, why that happens, you know, it, it's seemingly like, it, I guess, because it mixed with state and it became more of like a, a takeover than it did like a actual, like a religious beliefs, religious, like, I don't know, I don't, I don't even know if religious is the right word, but more of a belief system rather than like a church and state power system, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure you know that the pagan actually comes from the word for people who live in the country, a country dweller. And what is thought that like Christianity, when it took off, especially within the Roman Empire, it was really a religion of city people. And people who lived in the country kept, you know, what people will call the old ways alive um, because they were so dependent on the land and the and the seasons and, you know, and, and knowing what's good for nature is good for you. Um and I think also in Ireland they didn't they didn't have to give up that love of nature as much because also Ireland didn't really have the kind of cities that other people they they had larger settlements but they they didn't have cities until the the Vikings set up some centers like Dublin there was a pre-Viking presence of Irish people at Dublin, but then the Vikings really made it theirs. And so, and anything with a Ford in it, like Waterford, Wexford, um, those are all Viking uh, real settlements. And those, and then you get the the English coming over and then they build more cities too. Um, and again, it's not to say that the Irish didn't have larger settlements, but they didn't have those kind of, that focus on cities that you're going to see in, in other places. So nature just it was the country, you know, everywhere was the country basically. And so they continued to have that um, appreciation for the natural world. Um, but I, I think, and I don't know, I mean, I th- and I think have, have either of you, have any of you been to Ireland before? I have, I have not. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, living in Hawaii, you live in incredible natural beauty, obviously, but Ireland really is an incredibly beautiful country. Um, and uh, and it's so fertile, you know, um, so, so this, the sense of being blessed with, with God's presence. And I, th- I think it's really palpable in the land for a lot of people. I hope to visit Ireland someday. My mother's been there several times and she just never stops talking about it. I love it so much. She brings back the be- the most best things from there. And my ex-fiance was from Ireland. She lived there for a number of years 
And they just went to lunch with a friend. His wife is from Ireland. Ooh, they nice. get around, don't they, the Irish? <laughs> they do. It's coming, man. I'm part of Irish in my family, too. Inevitably, it's on the bucket list. I cannot wait. So many. I want to I wanna do uh, Ireland and Scotland, hopefully back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That would be a really fun, fun trip because there's obviously a lot of cross-correlations there. There's... Right there's in this this like vortex energy that you hear of there too um and on the ley line maps um given to us by buckminster fuller uh that's that's one of the one of the many hot spots too so that's uh something i think that a lot of the old cathedral builders uh were very interested in is finding mm-hmm. these they had ways to research magnetism in the land and um that was very special to the church at one point and Mm -hmm. that was lost as well, which is unfortunate. Um, But I'm curious to, to, if you can give us a little Templar talk, a little like, so how, how did the Templars associated um, themselves with Ireland specifically? Because we had a conversation not too long ago with Freddie Silva um, giving us the, Oh, some uh, Andy refresh my memory, Portugal. Thank you. Uh, yes. Some of the history of the Templars in Portugal <laughs> and, and how that was a stronghold hub uh, and center of that. And uh, I'm sure Ireland plays into that as well. But uh, please, please enlighten us. Yeah. And I'll just um, just follow up a little bit when you said Ireland and Scotland, just so you know, the, the word Scott or, um, originally originally refers to an Irish person. Um, and why it's called Scotland is because um, the Dalriada in Ulster, the, in the northeast of Ireland, also colonized the southwest of Scotland. And so that was a, a unified thing. So um, especially between, uh, you know, northeastern Ireland and southwestern Scotland, they're so close to each other. I mean, you can see um, them from each other on a clear, clear, and it doesn't have to be a crystal clear day to see them. But as far as the Templars, I mean, the Templars were much more important in Portugal than they were in Ireland. Um, so it, they really only come to Ireland um, in after the English uh, colonize Ireland, and they actually do come with Henry II. And so Henry II was the king um, when the English colonized Ireland um, in 1170. And he he came to Ireland primarily. There, there's so you have a man named Dermot McMurrow, and Dermot McMurrow was the king of Ireland of uh, the king of Leinster, which is like southeastern Ireland, and um, he had been kicked out by other kings. And so he went to England to ask for help to get his kingdom back. And Henry II is like, I'm not dealing with you right now. I'm not saying yes. I'm not saying no. I'm just not dealing. Um, But other people uh, who were like under Henry II did respond. And one of those people is the man who will become known as Strongbow. Um, And so the, the invasion starts in 1169. And the Normans are... You could say what you want about the Normans, but militarily they were they were a powerhouse. They they knew how to fight. They had they had good weapons. They had good horses. They had all they had more experience and um in this kind of fighting that could just take out people much faster. And so they just really they were very successful militarily from the get-go. And so then Henry starts to get concerned of that his like underlings are going to create their own kingdom in Ireland, and then it's going to be a threat to his power in England. So that's one thing. And then he also um, 
murders his archbishop of Canterbury in his cathedral. This is Thomas Beckett. He doesn't do it directly, but he says something that leads some of his knights to go kill the archbishop in his own cathedral. And, um, you know, there's Henry gets to some extent, Henry gets away with it. They say he never really ordered it. I I don't trust Henry enough to say he didn't order it. I, I think he's a slippery and he's hard to, you know, but he, he did accept a degree of responsibility in inspiring them to go kill the archbishop. But he kills, uh, or he has Beckett killed at the end of 1171, and he does not, no, it's at the end of 1170, and he does not want to deal with the fallout because killing your archbishop is a big deal. Um, and so he's like, all right, I'm going to go to Ireland and I'm going to take a time out from England and France because also at this point in time, he has even more territory in France than he does in England. I mean, he's a, he's a French overlord as well. Um, and he's like, I'm just going to go to Ireland and figure some stuff out. And the Irish kind of ironically um, welcome him. And it's thought that they welcome him because that the people underneath him were so savage in their fighting that they just wanted it done. And they thought that he could be someone who would bring his lords like to heal, basically. And they thought he would be like a new Ardri, like a new high king, which again, I use the word figurehead and then said it's not really a figurehead because it's more than a figurehead, but also it's not a king in the sense of a centralized powerhouse. Um, and so anyway, then Henry's there from 1171 to 1172. 1172, he goes back to England, and that's when he's willing to say, okay, I messed up. I had the, my archbishop killed. What do I have to do to make it right with the pope? And so the pope says that what he does in Ireland is part of his penance, and and um, he elaborates on that in different ways, including establishing the Templars and, and bringing them over to Ireland, as well as other parts of his domain. So that's when the Templars first come to Ireland is in the wake of um, Henry's arrival. And we have virtually no evidence uh, that they were ever like what, what I would call Irish. Um, I, they were the English colonial people who they are the ones who established the Templar houses. Um, there is uh, actually on the cover of my book is from a Templar preceptory in Sligo, and Sligo is in the northwest part of Ireland, and this is the one Templar preceptory, and preceptory is like a monastery, um, but for the Templars, um, that's in lands that uh, was more controlled by Native Irish people. And there are some like Native Irish family traditions that they were involved in the Templars there, but there's no way of uh, substantiating that. So so all the like reliable historical evidence tells us these were English people who came over to Ireland and lived in these houses. Um, and most of them, uh, I think there's, there's very little evidence that any of the Templars in Ireland ever had anything to do with like the Crusades or the Holy Land, um, which is ironic if you know the Templars, like that's supposed to be their their main function. And it's, there's just very little evidence that the Templars in Ireland had much to do with that at all. So, so they seem in Ireland to be like very um, distant from what their purpose was elsewhere in Europe. And they they were they they're there from you know 1170 until their trial and. 1307 um, to 1309. And, and then after that, we don't really know. I mean, probably what happened to them elsewhere, which is basically they were, you know, bundled off to other religious orders after the, the order was dissolved. So could it be possible that they started in Ireland and then uh, navigated down to the Middle East and then over to Portugal 
or maybe they came back. Um, I mean, anything can happen, you know, and, and our records are obviously very incomplete. Um, but there's, there's no evidence that says that they did, but you know, it, it is islands, you know, islands communicate with each other. They interact with each other. Um, and there yeah. were a couple, like during the trial, there were a couple of Templars who had been in Ireland during the trial and then they show up in England, um, and that's where they're they're being um, tortured to into confessing what um, you know their 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 inquisitors wanted them to say. Um, so so we know people did move. We don't know how they got between one place and the other. Um, you know, and and you have like in Scotland, there were very few Templars who were tried, and and we know there were more Templars who were in Scotland. Well, where did they go? You know, and this is where conspiracies come from. Well, they they took the Grail and they they you know escaped. Um, and again, I, there's no there's no reliable historical information um, that says that that's true. But you know, uh, history is a mystery, and we only have the <laughs> most basic clues. So. so, how long did the Grail itself uh, last in Ireland? I, I, there's no evidence that it was in Ireland at no, all. So, it's got to be at some point. <laughs> but where you should look is also like when you were talking about ley lines and where you want to go, you need to go to Glastonbury. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so that's the, that's where it's said to be, you know, mm -hmm. to the, the Grail, especially. And that that line follows directly across somewhere to the, the northern east coast, too. And that's like kind of said to be why. Uh, a big reason why they were setting up in that northern east coast part is following mm -hmm. the magnetics because uh, the history i mean that the, america yeah of america yeah sorry absolutely of america so completely side sidetrack situation prince henry though uh must have uh either been indebted or done some work for the templars or been a templar himself having uh you know because the at some point, there was a switch when the Templars were working with the Pope uh, and working with the Vatican and were the true Knights Templar to a point where they were almost kind of like, obviously, you know, <laughs> seen as heretics um, themselves. And so um, was Prince Henry uh, a Knights Templar? Um King Henry, he's King Henry, no, there's no, there's no evidence for that, and he supported uh, a lot of different religious orders, not just the Templars. I, I think, like probably, the Templars appealed to him more than most religious orders because he was a warrior. Um, but you know, again, you can say a lot about Henry, but uh, he he was a warrior, and Templars were warriors uh, first and foremost. I mean, they weren't terribly successful in the end, and that that was an issue for their survival. But they were um, warrior monks who were also bankers, um, so they sort of checked a lot of boxes. But that made them yeah. <laughs> attractive targets um, when you know Philip, who's the king of France, he goes after the Templars because he wants more money, mm -hmm. um, and. You know, I and and just like the Vatican is a, a later at, at at this point in time, the papacy. Um, well, in the 14th century, they are just switching to uh, Avignon. Actually, is uh, in in southwestern France, but um, Avignon, Avignon, yeah, in France, A V I G N O N. Okay. Um, but the, in Rome, where their main palace was, it was it wasn't the Vatican yet. It was the Lateran. 
Um, but like the papacy, the papacy was made to do what Philip wanted, Philip of France wanted to ha happen to the Templars because again, <laughs> you and whose army and the Pope doesn't really have an army. He, he, he can inspire other people to fight for him, but Philip's got a pretty impressive army. Um, you know, and especially once the papacy is moved to Avignon, you're literally in France. You know, you're surrounded by his power and authority. So um, the Pope was made to do, to an extent, what Philip wanted. Um, but it's interesting, you know, the Council of Vienne, which is the council that dissolves the order, they don't actually, they, they leave it, uh, they, they say there's, that there's too much suspicion that's been attributed to the order, so it has to be dissolved. They don't say they're guilty. Um, even though so many Templars were tortured into confessing to what Philip wanted them to say. Um, so, so in the end, like the Pope does what the Pope can to protect papal power. Um, <laughs> does what the Pope can. <laughs> T-shirt right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at this point in time, the Pope didn't do all as much as uh, the Pope wished that the Pope could do. Right. Mm -hmm. Philip had a bigger army, so Philip got his way. To an extent, although something you'll, I think you guys will will appreciate. There's said to be a curse um, that Jacques de Molay, who is the um, last head mm -hmm. of the, the Templars, he said to curse um, both the Pope and Philip. And like within a year of when they execute Jacques de Molay, um, both of them are dead. And and in addition, oh, like yeah. Philip's whole, all of his sons die. I mean, like everybody dies, but you know, like <laughs> they die before they mm -hmm. they can achieve as much power and everything, you know? So if you like uh, a sense of like the Templars getting revenge, um, that's an interesting dimension to it, that like history bears it out. Like his son, actually one of his sons dies playing tennis, like early tennis. Wow. And like tennis isn't generally known for being a fatal sport, you know, but, but uh, and like Philip, I think he just slides off his horse. There's no explanation for for why he dies. Um, so it's it's interesting if you like the idea that they they mm -hmm. that Jacques de Molay brought down vengeance upon Philip and um, the Pope for what they did to the order. And Jacques de Molay would have some some deep mystic knowledge as well. Like he would have some some underground secrets, you know, that given to him from some alchemist working in Paris. the you know the what what was that? Said pharaohs, like sounds like the curse of the pharaohs. You know? I, so I want to ask you what so like having studied the saints. My and, curse will get you. Oh yes, powerful. Uh, having studied the saints, having studied all of this beautiful history, you know, very, uh, very, 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 very grateful to have such a great, well-researched human on here. What do you think about mystics and, and curses and magic um, as it was so prevalent in the Middle Ages, so prevalent during these times? Aside from politics, what was going on on the, on the side of magic and curses? And do you, do you actually maybe consider these things truthful or real? What do you feel about magic? <laughs> well, there's a lot in that question. So I think magic is all sorts of different kinds of things that um, get uh, understood differently. So you to say you said mystics and curses and then magic. So I'll take mystics first because <laughs> I, I love mystics. Um, and actually as an undergraduate, that is what I focused on for my undergraduate research is looking at the begins, um, which is a group of women, 
uh, who were, they were like nuns, except for they didn't take permanent vows. They just decided they were going to follow Jesus, basically, and give their lives over to contemplation. And a lot of them wrote our earliest works in the various vernaculars around Western Europe. Um, and they're just incredible. And, they, and the mysticism, the theology that they share is just, the mystics I'm thinking of, it's incredibly beautiful and empowering. And like, the church needs more of that, in my opinion. But the church is not comfortable with that. Yeah, sorry, Dan. Yeah. What were they called again? The Beguines, B-E-G-U-I-N-E. Um, there were males. They're called Begards, B-E-G-H-A-R-D, but they weren't as prominent as the Beguines, which is interesting that the women were more dominant. And mysticism tends to be an area where women have more prominence than mm -hmm. others because you don't need to be a priest. You don't need to be a university education. You need, just need to have this experience of the divine. And God frequently will... Yeah. <laughs> and um mother's intuition so so yeah so there's a lot of like the mystics i think are i mean depends on which mystics but i think it's incredibly beautiful theology there um now curses uh it gets interesting if, if you read the bible the bible is full of some really powerful curses and and um a lot of religious people like priests um, like Ladred, who Ladred, I mean, that's literally his name is Ladred. You'd think these names are too good. Um, Ladred, um, going after Alice Kittler and um, and her son, who's actually named William Outlaw. You know, I mean, the names are fantastic here with this with this um, trial. But anyway, Ladred, one of her protectors, one of Alice Kittler's protectors, was a man named Arnold Lepore, which is a good, another good name. And it's where we get the power family, the Irish power family from the Lepores. Um, Anyway, Lepore like resisted Ladred again and again and again, and um, eventually Ladred is able to be successful. In you know he he doesn't get Alice; he gets Petronilla Domitia, who's a, a an associate of Alice's in some way. Some people, lots of times, people will call her a maid. We we don't know that she's a maid, although she does say that she cleans up after Alice and her demon had sex. But that's the closest that we get to mm. her playing oh. a kind of maid role. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, history's fascinating, isn't it? Um, and anyway, so event Lepore is just, he's so angry. I mean, Ladred is so angry that Lepore was able to defy him for so long. He eventually calls him a heretic, too. And um, he's able to... Um, when he's he's keeps stalling for the trial for him to be a heretic, so that Le, that Lepore has to stay effectively in a dungeon um, over you know a wet winter, and it kills him in the end. And so Ladred issues this chilling curse um, that's taken, but it's taken straight out of uh, the Hebrew Bible as far as like what it's going to do to anybody who does any kindness to Arnold Lepore or to anyone who defies him. I mean, he doesn't name him Arnold Lepore, but it's very clear who he's talking about. Right. So these curses, um, I, I like, I don't think, uh, I don't, I, I think these curses are insights to people's, um, psychological states. I don't know mm -hmm. that necessarily that they had any ability. I mean, one of the things about the saints is that especially Irish saints, they're known as being particularly vindictive. And if you don't do what they want, they will cause great harm to you. Um, and so sometimes like it doesn't, that's not really what I think of as like a holy person is cursing you or else, you know, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to, you know, have you be devoured by otters piece by piece or something like that. But, but the saints are, are, why, why the people who are writing these things about the saints, they want you to give money to their monastery. And so that you know, if you give money to this 
person, you're going to get some good things, but if you piss them off, you're going to pay for it, right? So it's about the the saint's power. Um, so that's what, I, when I think of curses, that's more of what I think. Um, when you talk about magic, so so like, what do you mean by magic? Because magic is such a rich term, mm -hmm. has so many different dimensions to it. Um, and the original connotation, like heresy originally means choice. Um, the Magi are uh, Zoroastrian priests. Right. And so so you get the the Greek word for mad where which is the origin for magic basically means other people's religion. Mm. So what people are saying is, mm. you know, we do miracles, we do God's work, you do magic, you do like deceitful kind of work, which I, I do not think is what you're saying by magic at all. But like in the Middle Ages, like what are you differentiating? So there's uh like kind of like the seven uh Renaissance magics or the seven uh ages yeah like well like uh uh, uh let's see necromancy aromancy pyromancy geomancy um uh but i guess yeah anything because there's a lot of lot of old alchemical texts and scripts and uh you know the seals of solomon divination mm -hmm. um you know they were practicing divination a lot of times that had to do with like astrology and trying to quite literally summon entities, if you will, in mm -hmm. uh, in the chambers. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So necromancy. Um, we know that there were clerical ne necromancers, and that they um, engaged in practices in which they were striving to summon demons, and that they believed that they could do this. But and this is one of the things where it ties into persecution of witches, um, because the people who were opposed to necromancy would say, you can't get demons to do your bidding. If you summon demons, you're doing their bidding. So then you're worshiping demons. Right. And so we know there were necromancers. We know we have their their books. You probably have their books where you can see this is, you know, what you do in order to summon a demon mm -hmm. um and and it's very clear from those texts that they're trying to get the demons to tell them things so they will have power so they'll be able to do that divination so that they'll be able to have knowledge that other people don't they understand themselves at least from these texts to be good christians they they are generally priests they are you know the ones who are serving in the church performing the masses, they think they have this ability to control demons too, at least from, from these texts. Um, we know that people were doing this. And, and one of the things that's interesting, so John the 22nd is the Pope. Uh, he becomes Pope in 1317. And he's the Pope that like picks Ladred out of obscurity. We don't know anything about Ladred until he basically shows up to be the Bishop of Ossory. The, and so he's the one who persecutes Alice Kittler and like starts the witch craze, basically. Mm. And um, John the 22nd, who went after a lot of uh, people he claimed were necromancers. We don't know that they actually were necromancers, but he was saying that they were doing necromancy to try to kill him, right? So he was trying to protect himself by going after, like, he goes over... Was he a Habsburg? Like, no. Okay, because they were just naturally very paranoid, but I think anybody <laughs> in power is probably paranoid at, at this point. Right, right. And, you know, you, you probably... In order to get to that 
level of power, you've probably made a few enemies, you know, and you've probably done some things, you know. So, um, so, so John is, he's going after necromancers more than he's going after, um, witches. He doesn't really go after witches, but he has created Ladred basically, and he sent him off to Ireland. And as soon as Ladred shows up in Ireland, he's like, okay, I know there's got to be heretics here. Tell me where the heretics are. Like, let's go after some heretics. And people are like, dude, we don't got any heretics. There's no heretics here. There's not an issue. But eventually, mm-hmm. Alice Kittler, who was on, I think, husband number five at this time, like she does go through a few husbands. And, and each time she gets more and more money and power and she's climbing up the ladder. Like you, if you want to see her as like someone, a, a black widow, there's evidence that you can read that way. Um, but anyway, the, the, the first claim that he gets of someone saying we've got heretics is her former son-in-law um, or no, some former stepson who's mad that she got what he considers to be his inheritance. So he says, she's the one, she's a heretic. She's a heretic. And so Ladred basically takes the claims that John the 22nd was saying against necromancers, where they are using these books to summon demons. But Ladred is going after a woman who's been married a whole bunch of times, isn't known for being particularly educated. And so he says she's using her body instead of a book. And that's where you get this sort of connection between witches having sex with Satan to get their powers, whereas necromancers did it through their learning and their training. But I don't think that's what I mean. That's that's like what he says magic is. But I think magic's all sorts of things that's different than that. How do you spell a dread? L e d r e d e. Oh, okay. Le dread. His first name's Richard, so you could call him Dick. Yeah. <laughs> Dick of dread. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Judgment. Yeah, it's an in- interesting uh, whole realm of of necromancy, like used in like religious ways, and then used in like heretical ways. But like having that, like we talked about earlier, like where does the distinction lie? This orthodoxal way of thinking that puts you in a straight line of, hey, no, I, I mean, I'm going to bring somebody back from the dead, you know, or what have you, and. <clears throat> That, uh, Jesus was brought back from the dead. Theoretically, that's necromancy. Yeah, I and then <laughs> Mary Magdalene was a necromancer. You know, hey, <laughs> I, I'm down, and she she's a wonderful alchemist as well. Yeah, uh, let's get more into like uh, like kind of the the politics and like uh, like when this Reformation. Uh, type of stuff starts happening like what's like going on in with England and Ireland at the time and and the church and everything like there seems to like face value you know you can see oh well they're just trying to conquer but it seems like from from your book there's a lot more like political stuff going on that's like a little bit less like well known or you know something you actually have to research to like understand and get into um yeah it's it, so it's interesting and i'll focus on ireland um because that's what i do but uh the when you have the english colonists who come over some of them come over you know 1169 is when they first start coming over and if you have someone like arnold the poor 
who was, again, one of Alice's main defenders, and she was married to his current husband. So even though Ladred is saying she's trying to kill his kinsman, um, he's defending her. He's not buying Ladred's story. Um, his family have been over in England, in Ireland, since the beginning of the English coming over in 1169. Um and it's interesting. One of the things that he says about Ladred is he calls Ladred this, he calls him, um, it doesn't, like the words don't have the force today, but he's calling him a tramp. Like he, he's he got no no uh, home. He's got, he's just wandering around. And he's, this tramp comes from England and he says, um, we're all heretics. And he says that Ireland's uh, the land of saints and scholars and heresy has never been found here. And we all need to unite against Ladred. So even though, you know, I can, call Arnold the Poor an English colonist, because that's what he was, he was also something, he was not English. You know, these people had been in Ireland. By that point, you're talking 150 years, right? And so that's a long time to think of. I mean, he they had connections with people back in England still, but he would identify first and foremost with Ireland. But that doesn't mean at all he identified with like what we would call the native Irish or the Gaelic Irish, the the people who are speaking Irish and and um, that who had the lands before the English came and everything. And and the Irish control actually in the 14th century, the Irish control more of Ireland than the English do. Um, but anyway, the people that that Arnold the Poor sort of represents, the English colonists who have been there for a long time, they really don't like the English either. They don't like the Irish, but they don't like the English. And um, and everybody doesn't like each other in, in various configurations. But successively, because as I said, like in the 14th century, the Irish control more of Ireland than the English do. And they just control more and more of Ireland until in the 15th century, you have the English control of Ireland reduced to what's known as the pale. And this is where the expression beyond the pale comes mm. from. So the pale goes from Dundalk, which is to the north of Dublin, to Dalky, which is south of Dublin. And it's this ring, I think it's like a 50 mile wide like half circle around Dublin. And that's where the English have the most power. And the rest of Ireland is either controlled by the native Irish or it's controlled by English colonists who have intermarried with the Irish and the expression has become more Irish than the Irish themselves. Um, so it's when, when Elizabeth comes to power in the 16th century, um, and then when, you know, James I, James VI of Scotland's whole issue there and what he's doing, um, they are trying to reestablish more control in Ireland. And this is where you get the Ulster plantations, where, where James I of England, James VI of Scotland, is, is having people from the lowlands of Scotland colonize the northeast of Ireland. Um, and so so this is like another wave of colonization. And this, and this also happened... Under Elizabeth, so you have uh, you you might be familiar with Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, um, and so Edmund Spencer is one of these what he calls New English versus the Old English, and so the, by Old English you mean someone like Arnold the Poor, somebody who's been in Ireland for a long time, and they hate each other, the Old English and the New English. It's not just the English and the Irish hate each other. These you know people who've been in Ireland and part of the English colony for a long time hate these new upstarts coming in um and you get to um you get to the point when we get to the reformation so under henry the eighth before before elizabeth as you know one of the things he does is he he um confiscates 
the monasteries, their their land and their wealth. This is known as the dissolution. And he forces this to happen in Ireland, and he's forcing, you know, the areas that he controls in Ireland to become Protestant, which, again, it's not the whole island because there's more control by the Native Irish. Well, it's not only the Native Irish who are interested in his plans, and, again, he doesn't have any control over the areas that the Native Irish hold, but the real opposition to what Henry is doing in Ireland are from the old English, the people like Arnold the Poor, because they don't want to give up Catholicism. And so they, uh, and and they don't like Henry, you know, and they don't like these English people who are coming in. So you have a lot of uh, resistance to the Reformation in the 16th century. Um, and even still, like if you look at 1798, which is one of the, you know, first uh, armed Irish resistance. So in 1607, you have what's called the Flight of the Earls. And that's when like, that's like the death gasp of native Ireland, like the English have control of Ireland from 1607 on. And um, in 1798, which is the next time that you have this really kind of notable rebellion, it's actually led by Protestants, you know, who, who are opposed to England. So it's it's easy to say, you know, Catholics versus Protestants, and the Catholics are the Irish who are against the English, but it's a lot more complicated than that. So there is a lot of resistance to what Henry was trying to do and most of that resistance is coming from the people known as the old English, because you know the Irish, uh, where they had control, Henry didn't wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. Um, so it was own, his own people resisting Protestantism. I know. I mean, one of the wow. things one of you said is like. There's so many different people and it's hard to keep it all straight <laughs> and like, yeah. And then they all change sides again, you know? So it's, it's yeah. really hard. Even when you got a handle on it, it's like, yeah, for that year, you know, <laughs> but things can change next year. So like what, what, what's a Protestant though? Like, what does that mean? Okay. So Protestant? when, sorry. Yeah. When Henry, so there are lots of different kinds of Protestants, but when, what Henry tries to do so you have like Martin Luther, and that starts Lutheranism, right? And then you have um, John Calvin, and that starts uh, Presbyterianism, as well as Dutch Reform and, and other kinds of things. But when Martin Luther and John Calvin were genuine theologians, and had, they had genuine differences of like understanding who Jesus was and what we should do about it, where Henry really just wanted power and control. He wanted to stop having to let the Pope decide things for him. So he basically wanted to get rid of the Pope and, and replace the Pope with himself, be like, be, be the one in charge of the church. Um, the other thing that he wanted to do was to take the monastery's wealth because then he could use that wealth. So like when Luther and Calvin were against monasticism, that was like a genuine opposition to the idea that some people should be monks and nuns. Like, they think like one of the things that Martin Luther said that the divine command that falls on all of us is to be fruitful and multiply. So we all should be getting married and having children. And he had interesting things to say about that. And so because if you think that, then you don't think there's any place for someone like monks and nuns who aren't getting married and having children. Right. Whereas Henry is like, like, I don't, I don't care about that stuff. I just want your land. I just want your money. I, I just want to be able to use it for my purposes. So that's why he goes after the monasteries. So when I say, um, Protestants, I primarily mean people uh, like what, what Henry is doing is he's establishing what becomes known as the Church of England, 
right? And this becomes, in the United States, it's known as Episcopalianism. And um, the so you have the Church of Ireland when you're in Ireland, you have the, uh, you know, different areas known geographically as the Church of, but they, they generally follow what's also known as the Anglican Communion. And it's Anglican, that's the same root for Anglo, Anglo-Saxon, means the English Communion, basically. Um, and that's what Henry's trying to push. And so in in uh, the Church of England, it's saying there's no pope. You can't be loyal to the pope. Um, you have to just recognize that the person who's the head of the state is also the head of the church. Um, and so that's what he's trying to push. And then you also have other Presbyterians. Like if you look at the north right now, the north of Ireland, and you know, even though we have the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and everything, I'm sure you're very familiar, there's been a lot of what's called sectarian violence in, in Northern Ireland, religious violence. Mm-hmm. And people generally say Protestants and Catholics as if, you know, that that suffices. Um, but it's actually more specifically more Presbyterians. And it's those Presbyterians who were brought down by James I and colonized Ulster there who are so anti-Catholic. And it's less, ironically, the the Anglicans, because um, basically the Presbyterians, uh, to put it kind of crudely, the Presbyterians and the Catholics are fighting for second place in the North, because the English are already in control, and they're already deciding who gets what, right? But you have the Presbyterians, who are the what's known as the Scots-Irish, the people who are brought from the lowlands of Scotland and colonized Ulster, who are... Uh, particularly against against the Catholics as far as like another threat to their power and being second place. And they're both oppressed by the English and that. So so when I say Protestants, it's the people who are um, either Anglican following Henry's way or they are Presbyterian, which, you know, the main Reformation figure associated with that is... Um, is John Calvin, although in Scotland you get to, you know, Knox is really the one who's most influential. What's, what's monastic? Okay, and monastic is uh, the monks and the nuns. So if you like, would monk, okay. so these are people who monasteries. would, yes, monasteries. They they create, they, they go off to, to live in community to, to, you know, pray to God most of the time. I mean, that's the, their primary function okay. is to pray. I was just curious because there's like a, a lost tribe of Israel called Manasseh. Mm. So I was wondering if there's any kind of uh, relation there to monastic and Manasseh, you know. I, I don't think so. Thing. I mean, ironically, for the monasticism, the moan refers to one because it, it started where people would like oh. go to be by themselves, but then other people would follow them because they were like so inspired by them. And then like a community sprung mm. up around them kind of thing. So uh, this is like an interesting, interest, huh? Mona Lisa was a monastic. Was she? I don't know. Got to name Mona. (laughs) (laughs) Now um, I have a question: Were the Protestants protesting against the rule of the Pope and uh, the banning of divorce, or was that like a big part of it, being able to divorce? um... So for for Henry, that was the the main thing. I mean, Henry, so. And it's ironic because like one of the people I've referenced is James the first, is James the sixth of Scotland. He's a Stuart. He's Scottish. Um, well, Henry the eighth is actually Welsh. He's a Tudor. Um, but but first and foremost, they're kings. And they and like Henry the eighth 
does more to hurt the Welsh than pretty much any English king ever did. And James I does more to hurt the Scots than than um, most English uh, monarchs did, right? Surprising. So just, yeah, just because you're coming from there doesn't mean uh, that you're going to be nicer to your 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 home group or whatever. So, um, but Henry, so how did they get to this kind of obscure branch of the royal family, the Tudors, where you get a Welshman on the throne? So that's Henry VII, Henry VIII's dad. Well, that's because of the War of the Roses, right? And and why was there the War of the Roses? Because it wasn't clear who was going to be the king. And there was a, the, the question of, of succession. So Henry is very concerned. He needs to have a male heir so that when he dies, everybody knows it's going to be his son who's the king. Um, now, Henry actually was a second son. He had an older brother who was supposed to be the king, and his older brother married Mary, um, who will, uh, I mean, Catherine of, Catherine of Aragon. Um, and, but he dies, Henry's older brother dies before he can become king, and Catherine of Aragon swears the marriage was never consummated, meaning they never had sex. And so in this view, when it comes to royal weddings, if a marriage isn't consummated, it's not valid. And um, so that means that because Catherine of Aragon is, you know, Spain is the main powerhouse in the 16th century here. Um, so England really wants to get in good with Spain. And so they want the ruler of England to be married to Catherine of Aragon. So when Henry's brother dies and Henry becomes the heir, then he's the one who marries Catherine of Aragon. And he and Catherine of Aragon, um, they have one daughter who lives. That's the one who is married, then becomes known as Bloody Mary and everything um, later. But they they have, uh, they have, I think, a couple of male children who, like, never survive in infancy. They never survive, like, more than five days or something. And Henry takes this a couple, uh, Henry wants to marry, Henry wants to have sex with Anne Boleyn, and he wants to have children with Anne Boleyn. And uh, he can't marry Anne Boleyn as long as he's married to Catherine of Aragon. And they could have dissolved their marriage. And dissolution is is something, you know, when you, when you it's, it's like an annulment, if you're familiar with annulment. So you say, like, there was never really a valid marriage there. And, and the Pope has annulled other marriages and will go on to annul other marriages, but he's not going to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine because Catherine's nephew, who's Philip of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, Philip is the most powerful person on the political stage at this point, and the Pope is not going to piss Philip off. So he's not going to annul his aunt's wedding to Henry. And Henry... Um, insists that because Catherine had been married to his older brother, what Henry is doing is like marrying his sister. And that's why they're not having any boy babies survive. God is punishing them. Mm -hmm. So he's like really arguing as much as he can that this is an invalid marriage and the Pope needs to honor it. But the Pope is just not going to back down. He's not going to go with little Henry of England against big Philip of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. So then, you know, this while this is happening, you have the, what's happening in Germany with with Luther, and you have 
you know, all sorts of other people who are breaking away from the Catholic Church. So Henry realizes, well, I can break away from the Catholic Church too. And then if I am the head of the church, then I decide if I stay married to Catherine of Aragon. And that's what he does. So he puts Catherine of Aragon aside, and then he marries Anne Boleyn. And with Anne Boleyn, he has uh, a daughter who will grow up to be Elizabeth, but he has no male children with her. And then also he uh, doesn't want to stay married to Anne Boleyn, and he's... Um, he claims that she's uh, cheating on him. And to cheat on him because he's the king is treason. And so she's killed. So Catherine of Aragon at least is put in a like a castle off to the side. She She's not killed. She's too powerful to kill. Um, but Anne Boleyn, he's able to kill. And so then he goes on to marry other people. He does get one son, Edward VII. Um, and Edward VII does inherit the throne when Henry VIII eventually dies. But he's a young, he's like, eight or nine when he inherits the throne, he's dead like four years later. Um, and so then it goes to Mary. So, so for, uh, and then after Mary, it goes to Elizabeth. So for Henry, the concern was about divorce, but generally speaking, it wasn't so much about divorce. So that's a long answer. And, to your and, question. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, Henry's a uh, Plantagenet. Um, no, that that's actually Henry the second. Who's a Plantagenet. Henry, Henry, okay. this Henry is a tutor. Okay. I mean, they're all interrelated anyway. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> now, is this King Philip II that you're speaking of? Yes, he's, he's, I think he's Philip II of Spain. Or is he, no, is he Philip I of Spain and Philip V of the Holy Roman? I can't remember the numbers exactly. Yeah, the numbers switch when you have a different territory if you're, right. you know. Okay. Yeah, so like you'll be the Holy Roman Empire, like you were saying, like the fourth, and then the King of Ireland, the first. <laughs> yeah, it is right. Like James, different. I know James is James the first of England, but he's James the sixth of Scotland, mm -hmm. and maybe it's even Charles. I mean, they have like five names between them. You know, is it Charles? Is it Philip? Is it William? No, is it Henry? But I, yeah, I can't remember. So it might it might actually be Charles the fifth, fifth. and fifth yeah. the first of. Spain. I can't remember. Oh, Charles V is a very significant. Yeah, I mean, this guy is a big deal. I mean, he is the most powerful person in Europe at the time. So, one, and for a while. My, one of my favorite kings that I just got done doing a big bunch of research on was uh, Rudolph II. And because talk about like mysticism and magic and all of that, like he was. Uh, he was a heretic in the sen in the sense of like you know war and politics, um, but a uh, a fantastic like harbinger of or harbinger of like arts and mm -hmm. alchemy and you know multi ethnic uh, religions all in one town and and really was trying to rise Bohemia up to be at its true potential and he was very, very fond of Charles V and mm. um, took a lot of uh, some of his, like, ideas. And, well, I mean, one of the things that Charles, if, the person I'm thinking of anyway who, you know, was Catherine of Aragon's nephew and that the Pope wasn't going to piss off, he was extremely intolerant, especially to um, the Calvinists in um, in Holland and everything. So he's probably not your guy's, like, good model the guy i'm thinking of because he was not tolerant at all he he was insistent everybody had to be catholic um and he like he he was much more spanish than he was affiliated with the holy roman empire so he was like an outsider trying to force his catholicism on um 
the parts of, of the Holy Roman Empire that didn't want to be Catholic anymore. Yeah. So King Philip II married Queen Mary I in 1554 and then became the king of England and Ireland as well. So that oh, happened. so you're thinking when he married Mary, yeah, but that he was only that marriage didn't last long. Okay. And yeah. and so he um he wasn't able to do a lot in England, let alone in Ireland. So so it's not I think uh that is the son of the person I'm thinking of. So Philip's dad would be the person probably that I'm thinking of, Charles. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah, he only married her for for four years yeah because she died yeah, yeah. I, mean, I uh, think she was probably killed but yeah. unfortunately i i am uh i need to go and head into uh head into the the corporate work oh it's not a corporate place at all i gotta go to work um <clears throat> but um i will uh I, I will leave this conversation and you guys continue on for however long you guys want to go but i want to thank you so much mave uh Thank you for being so amazing and uh, <clears throat> talking in the emails, getting us all set up, because I know you were traveling across the pond and doing some real boots on the ground research for your next book. And I really appreciate this uh, chat. And maybe hopefully we could do it again to talk about your other book that we didn't <laughs> really get to touch on. That's a lot newer, probably more fresh. Yeah. Well, thanks, Roman. Thanks for reaching out. And thanks for everything you do. We're, Cheers. we're still here. We'll be here. Yeah, are you are you recording, Dan? Uh, I am, yeah. yeah. Okay, amazing. All right, cheers, everybody. Cheers, Indy. Cheers. Have a good day at work, man. Thanks for being here with us today. Yes, sir. Have fun. Aloha. We'll continue the conversation. Uh, that's why there's three of us, because uh, we can do multitasking. <laughs> Perfect. But, um, yeah, uh, were you asking something already, Indy? Uh, no, we were just uh, coming to the conclusion about uh, it was Philip the first um, that we were mentioning had intimidated uh, Henry and yeah, yeah, and Jane. Because I have uh, uh, I have like this big old chart above my head. That's why I keep looking up of like uh, all my descendants and stuff. That my mom my mom made this whole genealogy chart, and uh, I have like William the Conqueror and King Edward and whatnot. And then King Henry the Third is on there, and it says Plantagenet under his name, and so that's why that's why I was asking because he ends up marrying an Elizabeth Plantagenet. So I was wondering if that's the same Henry and yeah, Elizabeth. Yeah, and so, so Henry the Third is 13th century. So okay. the the numbers of his day should be 12 something. That's there, and Henry and Henry the Second is before him, but Henry the Eighth is uh, 16th century. So it's different family. Oh, um, I mean, again, yeah. they, they sh you're probably related. If you were related to one, is you're going to be related to a whole bunch yeah. of them because uh, they're all related to each other. But um, yeah, not I mean, part of the issue was there wasn't. Not necessarily that I want to be. It all seems pretty bad to me. But. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there wasn't a clear heir. And so like the House of York and the House of Lan Lancaster, they both thought that they should be the king. And so then they fought each other and eventually... Yeah a tutor from Wales becomes the king. Being, being a, like a, a well-researched historian, do you find it hard to watch like the Tudors and some of these other historical shows on television? 
Um, I, I mean, I enjoy a, a good story uh, as much as the next person. I don't confuse drama with history. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, yeah, like yeah. there's. I, I think a lot of time I, I recognize that um, we are most of us are really visual learners. So if we see something, it stays with us more than if we just read about it. Um, you know, and so there's. Uh, all sorts of things that will become part of what people know about the past that come from like Game of Thrones or something like that. But, but like a lot of uh, history inspires those dramas, you know, so there's, there's certain aspects of history that are, um, that are much better known now because of, you know, uh, dramatic retellings of it. So if I, I think, I think I really, enjoy, I mean, the Tudors came out many years ago, right? I mean, we're talking mm -hmm. like at least 15 years ago. Yeah. I think I enjoyed it. I thought it was well done, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I, that's not Henry VIII to me, you know, so. Yeah. I find, um, aside from that, I find King James to be a really interesting character in, in everything going on in, in this area. Uh, considering, you know, the King James Bible is the Bible that pretty much a lot of people follow and everything. And and he had a lot of impact. And, he you know, he married a, a Danish woman who uh, he, he wrote a book about demonology and all these kind of things. And, and seemingly there was a fight. Do you, do you know anything uh, about like the, is it Jacobites or Jacobites? Uh, and, Jacobites, and, yeah. Yeah, who, yeah, who, so, I mean, who I, are these people necessarily? And like, why are they coming in to save this you know, like king line of the Stuarts uh, above the rest? And like, what what is the connection there to the, with these people? Yeah, so now like I am a medievalist, um, which for me really and because i'm a, i'm a professor of religion so the way i i tend to date the middle ages but you know like history is arbitrary and it's not like people wake up and like oh we're in a totally different era right now but um you i look at like the fall of rome which the traditional date for the fall of rome is 479 like we can put any number of dates out there and you know and you can argue with their accuracy but so i say from 479 to um 1517 which is when the reformation began so that's where i prioritize and that's you know there's over a hundred uh, thousand years you know so there's a, there's a lot of history going on there um but because you can't the the history of the british isles is um you know they all all the different eras kind of feed on each other in different ways so i do know some about that but not as uh not as much as i do in earlier period um and i do i do agree he's fascinating james the first james the sixth um but it's really because of him that Scotland experienced the witch crazes that it did. And, yeah. and, um, and then when he came down to England, there were issues there too. So like, I, those are some of the things that I associate with him the most. And then also like the way he uh, really tried to quash what, what people would call might call Celtic culture of the Highlands, um, you know, and make them more English. Uh, I, f I find that problematic, uh, especially when it's coming from a Scottish person right um, yeah selling out his own people um but he he didn't see them as his own people necessarily you know and power is its own people um uh, so and then then you you get to uh but when you, i think with the the jacobites that is 
later. Um, so after you, so you have uh, James take over James Stewart, and then you have um, Charles take over after him, his son Charles, and then you have Cromwell and the you know the Puritan uh, Civil War basically in the in the middle, and then you have their offspring. Uh, you have Charles, and then you have James after him, and because they were getting more Catholic than the English wanted them to be. That's where you have William and Mary come in. Um, and so, and William of Orange and Mary is, uh, James's daughter, but she's Protestant and he's more Catholic. Um, so then you have that big battle about having the Stuarts instead of the house of Orange, right. With William and Mary coming in. Um, and so you then when you get, I think then the next generation is Bonnie Prince Charlie, you know, because they 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 are doing they they have more military as I understand it, and again it's not my period, they have more um military success than it looks to us from this distance because they lose so badly eventually. Um but at one point when when they're when they're winning, when um the Jacobite forces are are winning, um they're encouraged to pull back for a, a bit and then after that everything goes against them and then um the the people who wanted James to be king rather than William and Mary to be the king and queen um they they keep trying to fight on while uh the heir goes to France and then they come back and try to get Scotland um and it's I don't know I mean in Ireland which again is something I'm I'm more familiar with than Scotland but um, you have the Battle of the Boyne in 1688, where where both uh, James and um, William are fighting in Ireland, um, and it's a really devastating loss for the Jacobite forces. Um, so, you know, I mean, but but they're both kings of England. You know, it's like yeah, it's yeah. not Ireland's fight, it, it, but at that time, of course, obviously it was, and that's why it was happening there. But they're still like. They're both kings of England. Um, whatever one might be a little more Scottish than the another one a little more uh German. Um, but I they're both English. Yeah, I, I, I kinda conflated the uh Jacobite revolution with uh the Reformation. I thought that was actually in the same period. So uh that's my bad. That's how later. like that's how like everything just mixes up over there for me. It's really hard for me to separate all those things uh but we we've talked about um uh to get back to ireland a little bit we've talked about like saint patrick and 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 how he was going there to uh you know banish all the snakes there's this really interesting story of him and i think her name was cora uh and she was a like basically like a priestess and she turned into a snake and swallowed him and then he lived, <laughs> he lived in her for several days and then he Ooh. had to break his way out. And so, what? uh, I, what I, happened to her? Yeah. I mean, if he's he, breaking his way out. Or... Yeah. She, she got destroyed. Yeah. Um, she died. Uh, that's kind of an interesting, like take on like the, the, the serpents. Um, uh, because I think there is an association with uh serpent and, female uh goddesses um it's i think it's everywhere 
it's it's with Eve. It's with like a lot of the these um, goddess type figures are associated with serpentine type aspects or with the animal itself, even in Egypt and everything. So I think there's this interesting connection there to where maybe he wasn't necessarily getting rid of the serpents, but he was getting rid of this uh, 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 worship of a female divinity rather than a patriarchal one. And so it, it seems like the move was pretty easy. There wasn't a lot of bloodshed. So it's almost like they were kind of well adapted to what he was saying or doing. Uh, like it wasn't that big of a deal. It was more of like a sleight of hand type thing going on because there wasn't a lot of fighting. Do you, can you uh, maybe elaborate maybe some on that? Maybe we, I'm getting wait, some more second. things crossed. <laughs> One second. Yeah, it says here that uh, being eaten by the snake is a reference to returning to the womb. Ah. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, like snakes, obviously, uh, I think there is a strong association with females and also with the earth. I mean, one of the yes. things that in ancient Greece, they used to, you'd have a, snakes can tell you when, there's problems with the earth, like an earthquake coming. And so if a snake leaves the temple, you need to be on, on the lookout for, for um, earthquakes. And, and snakes are so useful for like protecting the grain. And, um, and then also snakes, the way they shed their skin and the, the renewal that's associated mm -hmm. with them. And so many different, so like huge fan of snakes. Snakes are wonderful. Um, and there is a association, as you said, with females in particular, but I have to say it with Patrick. Um, so as I, I mentioned earlier, you've got these two writings that are by Patrick and I was all set up. Like I'm obviously feminist and I think that Catholicism has done a lot of damage to women, especially not just women, but especially to women. And it is very patriarchal, which I think is very problematic. Um, and so I was sort of predisposed to be hostile to Patrick. Like Ireland was like the religion of the goddess and the religion of nature. And then Patrick came and, and the snakes are representative of, of, of paganism that he's driving out. And this is not helpful to Ireland. Right. But Patrick is actually um, a much better person than that in his own writings, as you see it. And he's, he's much more um, collaborative with females in particular. He very much appreciates the oh. females that are helping his work. And it seems like females are more his partners in his work than males are. Um, so I, I understand where like that criticism comes from, but with the, the writings of him, I think it's actually, he's, I'm not calling him feminist at all, but, but he's much more of uh he's much more open to working with women he's much more appreciative of what women are doing and he's much more positive about women than i think people would assume about him huh yeah so do you think that maybe just that that legend of him driving out the paganism is more of more of a legend and fairy tale than what he actually did maybe he just yeah made yeah made friends, i think definitely made friends with um Kind of the locals instead. I don't know. I mean, he he was a man on a mission, and uh, if he, but he was a man on a mission without a lot of power, you know. So he yeah. he didn't have the ability to tell people 
to do what he wanted. I mean, he does write that letter to Caroticus, but like I'm on Patrick's side with that one because like he killed a whole Caroticus killed and enslaved a whole bunch of people. So, you know, I think Patrick's on the right there, but um I think that uh he he clearly wanted people to convert to Christianity and he clearly felt Christianity was better than paganism. So I'm I don't think it's fair to say uh, or I don't think it's accurate to say that he was friends uh, with paganism because I think he was opposed to paganism. He's trying, he is trying to end paganism. Right. Um, but I think with, with females, kindness, uh, you know what I mean? And, and with women who are converting to Christianity, um, that's who he's making friends with. That's who he's partnering with. That's who he's appreciating. So it's not pagans. It's, it's Christian women, but he does genuinely have respect and appreciation for what they're doing and not every male writing in that century did so yeah yeah hmm. i have a question for you um you mentioned that you were uh identifying with being a medieval witch and um, um, I, i'm a medievalist i wasn't identifying as being a medieval witch but i studied okay excellent um i've uh come across some of the thoughts that it's possible that uh the medieval times were demonized because the roman empire fell in uh 476 but um, there was a resurgence of mysticism uh, during that time when the Germanic peoples overtook the Roman rule. And so it's been called uh, the first Renaissance. And there was then later like a, an ice age, like around the 1500s, a small ice age, when things went downhill again, mm -hmm. and then resurged during what we know as the Renaissance. Do you consider medieval times to be somewhat of a, a little Renaissance period? Well, I mean, so there's a thousand years in there. So there's a, a lot of, you know, you, you'd want to focus on well, what time in particular. I think the 12th century especially gets called the, the Renaissance of the 12th century. Mm -hmm. um, I think like a lot of people call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages, which is incredibly problematic. And But where that comes from is that notion that uh, so people were enlightened during Rome and then Rome fell, and then there was a period of ignorance that emerged uh, with the Renaissance when they rediscover classical teaching again, and that's where you get, like, the Reformation as well. And inherent in that is a lot of anti-Catholic bias because it's saying, like, when the Catholic Church was in control, that was a dark age of, you know, superstition and ignorance. Um, and I think there are all sorts of different ways of knowing things um like I, I don't i think there was ignorance obviously i think there's ignorance today and um there's violence today just as there was violence then so i, I think it's um there's a lot of assumptions built in when we call it the the dark ages uh, and i think like rome had a lot of issues in and of itself too so like rome to me is not this like paragon of like what we should be striving for um but i do think i'd like one of the most exciting centuries in the Middle Ages is the 12th century. And I think there's a lot of reason to look at it as the as a as a pre-Renaissance, if you will. Um, but there's also one of the worst centuries was one of the 12th centuries. Uh, mm. and like a lot of people, one of the th the 14th century is known one of the names for it is the calamitous 14th century. And people think it's like, I mean, that's when you get the Black Death, and that's when you get a lot of a lot of different kinds of issues. But I think we're kind of at our best when we're at our worst too. And we can be at our worst when we're at our best. So I don't think like any time period is like to be held up as a golden age. I think that every time period has beautiful parts about it, uh, innovative parts about it, as well as repressive 
part. So well said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see some some power to that thought. And uh it's easy for people to have a hard time with that because it's somewhat paradoxical, but the paradox is very real and it it definitely um boosts both sides of things. Um mm-hmm. because only through our difficulties do we grow and do we fortify ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean we shouldn't we shouldn't ignore the dark aspects and the, you know, we should learn from our mistakes, but we shouldn't just like be defined by our mistakes either and just see the the worst parts of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So do you think that the, uh, the, to go back a little bit, do you think that the Knights Templar were completely killed off or that they went into hiding? Um, it depends which Knights Templar where. Um, you know, I think yeah. like the, the ones, so I, I know the most about Ireland and I, um, I think they, like as far as like, the ones who might be keeping the grail or, you know, keeping the good fight, those were not those guys. They they were not heroes. Um, they were just, like, befuddled by why why is this happening to us? Like, I'm very sympathetic to what it must have felt like to be really respected and powerful one day and then thrown in prison the next and having these awful things said about you and having your whole way of life taken from you. And I think these guys are just confused and mystified and there's i there's not a single one of them that i was like yeah that's the guy who's going to escape and who's going to like have the order continue and you know all that kind of stuff i think where i personally don't believe it's probable that the templars continued but i i see that like the area that's most fertile for that is scotland just because so many of those we we know there were more templars in scotland who just vanished so where did they go what happened to them? Um, I think it's more likely that they're like, okay, they are torturing and burning people. I'll be leaving now. You know, I think I think it's like more like survival than it is like. Uh, I think it's more like personal survival than survival of the order. But it's certainly possible. Hmm. But I'd say unlikely. Yeah, it's where uh, Freemasonry ended up starting. It was in Scotland, right? So there is a connection between Templars and Freemasonry, also. Um, so it's probably what happened. They went on the ground for a while, just like the tribe of Dan does. They just go, oh, well, you know what, man, we're just going to go in the earth for a while and hide out. And then uh, we'll pop back out sometime later. <laughs> what, what do you, what's, uh, kind of your take on the Druids and, uh, Tua de Danon and what, did they have any kind of impact in Ireland, uh, in Absolutely. that time period that you focus on? Like, how do you see uh, the druids and all that stuff? You know, is it was it a was it a, a good solid thing, or what did they bring a lot of um, kind of bad idealism? In? Well, I think you know, as a historian, I'm going to prioritize the written record just because that's our closest yeah. record of 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 what happened. And um, the the people who wrote the records were Christians who were portraying pagans in a particular light. So I take anything that they say about the Druids with a huge grain of salt. Um, And and we know that the Druids were exceptionally 
learned, but they didn't want to write things down. Um, probably because like you had to know somebody to receive the teaching and it was much more direct and personal. Um, so anything that I say about the Druids um, or what we understand as the pre-Christian religion of Ireland, it's filtered through medieval Christians that I don't trust as witnesses. Um, so, and then you can go to the archaeological record um, as much as you can, but then then you're 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 working with objects, but you don't know what it meant to the people who created them. I mean, I think, and then like, so one of the places I love in particular in Ireland is uh, called Caramore. Mm-hmm. It's a megalithic cemetery, and um, so you're you're going to be familiar with Stonehenge, right? And, um, a, and you know that a lot of what's a megalithic cemetery? Um, yeah, so so uh, it's these huge uh, stone chambers to bury people in, and so and they are um, oriented like probably the most famous is uh one that gets called New Grange or Brunaboinia. And it's it's got it's huge. It's like a it's a hill in and of itself, basically. And it's got a uh, like a little doorway, but then up above the doorway is what gets called the window box, a smaller opening. And what happens on the winter solstice is the sunrise, if it's sunny on the winter solstice, which in Ireland, you know, is a is a gamble. But <laughs> if the, the sun on the winter solstice will pierce into that chamber and illuminate everything. And they um, cremated people uh, and put their, at least some of them, they put their uh, remains in there. So it's like a huge, huge burial tomb. And you have um, Caramore, which is several of them. So they're not as big as Newgrange. Newgrange is the biggest, but there's like dozens of them. And, uh, they recently, like maybe three or four years ago, did this genetic testing that suggested that the people who were buried there were like, you'll find this interesting because you've mentioned uh, Egypt a few times, but it was like a ruler brother and sister who were married to each other. And uh, it seems to be a very hierarchical, oppressive society as far as what they're finding through sifting through these remains. That's not the image I like to have of megalithic Ireland, you know, so so uh, old Stone Age Ireland. Um, I prefer a much more egalitarian, nature-oriented, uh, you know, recognizing there are multiple ways of um, interacting with reality and, you know, multiple dimensions and everything. But the historical record, unfortunately, there's not a lot of evidence to support that. That's just more like what I'd prefer to be true um but it's not there's not the evidence to support it unfortunately that i know of anyway that that, were these like oh sorry uh were these like mausoleums um well but they're older they're so so and they're natural they're not so they're like uh if i i'll put it in the chat and then you can google it or something so the most famous one is Newgrange, and the one I'm talking about specifically is Caramore, Caramore Megalithic hmm. Cemetery. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, we... But they, yeah, they have all of all, they have stone circles and and cairns and and all sorts of things that are oriented around like the winter solstice, the summer solstice, the equinoxes. You know, I mean, clearly they were in 
in tune with nature and the, the turning of the seasons and all sorts of other things. And um, so I, th- but we don't hear from the Druids directly. So it's hard to know. Mm. And when we do hear, we're either hearing from medieval Christians or we're hearing from, you know, Greek authors who are also not trustworthy for the, what's going on in Ireland. Yeah. Do you, yeah, so do, you do you think like, like, uh, like, the real like belief system of of the Irish has kind of been watered down by the Christians also then. Uh, and like their, their kind of belief system was different and they kind of Christianized it because it seems to have a lot of parallels with Christianity. Uh, but, but that could just be because the writers kind of put that in there to make it seem that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I don't, I, I don't know that there's one real belief system of the Irish. I think there's probably a lot of them, but like, uh-huh. as far as what was the dominant belief system in Ireland before the Christians showed up or before Ireland became Christian, um, yeah, I don't, I just don't trust what the Christians say it was, and I think like both that they can try to make it seem more like Christian because that's just their default. You know, they like have Christian lenses, so everything looks Christian to them. But then also they can demonize whatever's different and they say it's bad. You know, they can they can be hostile to it as well as just trying to sort of making it more Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that the uh, the Druids uh, were savage when they went to war with the Romans. They would um, put their heads on pikes and, and uh, mummify their heads and, and mm-hmm. carry them in keepsakes of their, their battles and their triumphs. And so uh, it could be understandable why they... Um, created so much hate uh from the romans because they they were very um skilled warriors mm-hmm. yeah i mean and i think i mean romans also like to take heads and and do some pretty savage things but we don't hear what the druids thought of them you know so it's hard to know but but yeah and but that that taking of heads remains very very popular in, in medieval Ireland and England and Scotland you know and, and putting it up as a as a warning and it um you know there's a lot of uh Americans who particularly associate scalping with they, they blame native peoples for doing it when the Europeans are the ones who did it first and and introduced it so it's like you know you don't blame the native peoples for doing back to you what or or to the non-native peoples, what the Europeans were doing to the native peoples. Yeah. Oh, um, by the way, I looked up uh, the Jutes, and apparently they hail from Jutland, which is modern-day Denmark and I think northern Germany. Huh. Uh, yeah. You've so, heard of Jutland, right? What's that? I know, uh, Dan, you've heard of Jutland. Nope. No, okay. Yeah. Um, it's the border of yeah, Germanic. But- but it territory. probably takes their na- that name from them, you know. Yeah. So then, so then, where does that name come from originally? I don't know, because you were you oh, were wondering about a connection with um, Judaism in particular, weren't you, Dan? Yeah, well, yeah. like uh, there, there's a connection, or some people believe there is a connection with the tribe of Dan from the Israelite tribes and the two of the Danan. and so it's very interesting, if, you know. And they are in that area of Denmark too, so. If there is like a Jute land there, then possibly that they were also uh, of Jewish descent and they came into Ireland. I know there's like an interesting story of the Irish 
uh, where the, where the tribe of Dan comes in and like uh, they go to war with like uh, this other group, but like the two generals they go talk to each other and then like but they can speak the same language and they're like how do you know my language and then like how do you know my language so it's kind of interesting that they they both have a similar language even though that they've never met before so seemingly they had once both came from the same place at some point in time and now they're like facing each other on the other side of the world more or less and they're like oh this is weird so it's it's kind of an interesting. I, I follow a lot. I'm not I'm non-religious, but I, I take the Bible as like some historical um, literature, and so I like to follow. Um, um, my name is Dan, so I like to follow the tribe of Dan around uh, because you know, like I heard this one guy Billy Carson say, like we have to figure out who these serpent people are and. I think this idea of serpent people is a little outrageous that people think that they're shape-shifting humans and shit like that. But um, so I was looking more into like the symbolism of the serpent and everything. And that's how I kind of got associated with like the goddesses and um, all of the other things that are associated with a serpent and the tribe of Dan is associated with that serpent. And seemingly they are all over the place. There's a lot of places in Ireland named after Dan and, uh, Din and Don and all that stuff. And so I kind of have been tracing that lineage around and then into Ireland. And then, and, and so the Druids and the two of the Dan and have been a big interest to me and, and that connection there. And then, um, so even the Molassians, right, they escape from Egypt and they go into Ireland and Dan lets them live and they go underground. So that way, they can stay there. So there's there's a lot of different connections to like Ireland and and uh, Judaism and 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 the North and everything. So it's just very interesting. That's like when you said like uh, the the people of Northern Ireland they had like all these ways and they they had like this Christianity before Christianity is very interesting that they would have the same beliefs like a half a world away uh, or similar and and that you know. It, it almost seemed like it would have came from the same place at some point. And, and the fact that when you, in your book, you talk about these racial differences uh, between, you know, the English and the Irish and how they could pick them out, you know, it, it almost seems like this kind of racial uh, backdrop, like what happens with the Jewish people over and over and how they always get outcasted from places. And so there's an interesting connection between Ulster and uh, Zara uh, from the tribe of Judah. So I, I just think it's all really interesting and try to piece it all together, you know, and, uh, we have this show, we have this opportunity to talk to a bunch of brilliant people. So sometimes I'm completely off and I, I like to be set straight. So it's, it's good to be able to talk about that, you know? Yeah. And just, I'm not trying to say that the Irish were Christian before there was Christianity, because we don't know what they believed. I mean, we right. have these archaeological remains. Um, they were Christian before the English were Christian, though, and they were English before the Normans were Christian, you know, so so there's there's that. And, that's, you know, you, but that's you weird, though, because there's like a, a jump there. It's like because it seemingly it all moved over that way from there. And so if you have like these people are just now starting to be, but these people already have like a a belief system in place. It's like it's really interesting that then that 
So it, it kind of jumps over. So how does it jump over, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, Patrick, actually, mm -hmm. he's abducted from um, probably from Wales um, and brought over to Ireland. And so they, you had the Romans who were colonizing England. And so there was some Roman Christianity in England before there was Christianity in Ireland. But that was primarily, at least the evidence for that is associated with the Romans. And once the Romans go, then that framework goes, whereas Ireland really took to Christianity. And then you have them spreading. They, they became missionaries like um, Colm Kill, who settled in Iona and then colonized in Scotland and, and other places there. But you, you'd be interested, too, that um, Patrick gets portrayed as a second Moses. And mm. like the Irish, the early Irish Christians really want to see themselves as continuing in the Jewish tradition as well as in the Christian tradition. And one of the things that gets uh, kind of thrown at them it, it, that's used to detract them, uh, try to detract against them is they get called what's Judaizing, which means um, they're keeping Jewish practices alive in Christianity. Um, and partly that has to do with the date for Easter because Ireland founded, followed an older way of calculating Easter which was too Jewish for Romans. Um, but there's actually no evidence, even though, like like I said, there's uh, the claim that Noah's granddaughter was the first human really to settle Ireland. But Noah is pre-Jewish, right? I mean, we, we look at, at Abraham as the father of the Jews, and Noah comes before that. So, so she's pre-Jewish in that sense, too. But um, the Irish, because they knew that they were so separate from Christianity's history, they tried to claim themselves as integral to it in some way. And those connections with Judaism were important for establishing that in the early Middle Ages, but then they become held against them. And we don't have any evidence that Jews really lived in Ireland. There might have been like trading and, and stuff like that, but we don't have any evidence that Jews lived in Ireland until the Normans came in the 12th century. So, but again, just because yeah. there's no evidence doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. Well, I, I kind of look at like etymology and, and symbolism and stuff like that. And that's kind of like what I use to trace back history and, and not always is it correct or anything. So, you know, that's why I said I like to hash out my ideas. But uh, there's also like Hibernia and Iberia, which are also like you could say they those places are named after Eber or Heber, which was like the foundation of the Hebrews. And so it's very interesting that Spain and then Ireland have those names in it. So uh, there's, and then there's, you know, uh, we've talked to Ralph Ellis who talks about Akhenaten and, and uh, his, his wife and how they escaped uh, Egypt and uh, left and went into Ireland. That's what became the Malaysians is uh, Akhenaten's daughter. And then, um, you know, we've talked to people like uh, Laird Scranton, who talks about Scar Bray and how Scar Bray was this uh, center, like almost like a university where they would teach people Druidism. And seemingly, like maybe even they talk about Goblucky Tepe as being this other type of place that was used to teach this this wisdom or knowledge. And seemingly they had these places all over it. It's just a weird, it's just, there's so much about history that we don't know and don't understand. And so that's what we like to figure out around here is like how, how all these pieces move. So in talking to you, I think we get a really good idea of the politics and 
you know, the racial diversity that was going on in, in Ireland and in England and, and what caused all this rift? Because we could easily just say, you know, well, it's Protestants and Christians, but there's a lot more to it behind behind uh, the veil uh, that is going on that creates these problems. And they kind of slowly evolve over time. It's not something that just happens in 20 years. It's like a hundred or more years that where you see like the progression of this movement into these different idealisms and everything going on. And it, and it's kind of like, you know, um, bad on our part to just jump to conclusions of, of what might've been happening, uh, based on the big words, you know, like, so yeah, I'd be curious to see uh, what your guys' take is on this. I have a little blurb uh, that I found about St. Patrick. Um, they mentioned that Korah was said to have come before the Melanesians were there, before Tuatha de Danan, and they call her the Great Mother. Um, but it says this, in one version of the story, when Korah faced down St. Patrick at Lufderg, she swallowed him whole, as mm-hmm. Mercia Iliad noted in Rites and Symbolism, and symbols of initiation being swallowed by the snake can be seen as return to the womb, a complete regeneration of the initiate through the, his gestation and birth by the great mother. But St. Patrick was not an initiate seeking rebirth through the mother's womb. No, he was intent on stamping out the influence of the serpent goddess and her promise of regeneration and unity concepts directly opposed by the new Christian church's doctrine of duality, sin and salvation through Christ. So St. Patrick, past two days and two nights within Korah's body, eventually cutting his way out and killing her in the process. The water of the lake turned red with her blood, and her body turned to stone. These stones were seen jutting out of the lake near uh, to Saint's Island and became part of the penitent experience of purgatory. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say what I said, because did you suggest that story, Dan, or was that mm-hmm. Roman that you're telling yeah, me about Cora? Yeah, so that, like, Patrick's own writings, I mean, he he was Christian, and he would have been hostile to pagans, but he wasn't hostile to women, and, oh. and that, to me, does matter. And, like, I think whoever told that story thought Patrick was more powerful than her, which I think is problematic, like, because why can't, I mean, yeah, she swallowed him, but he then rips her apart and kills her. So it's saying that ultimately he's more powerful. And so uh, that's not really to me, a, a, like I think her, her beliefs, if they're, they're more about, you know, the strength of women and the connections with nature and all that things, they're stronger than some guy, you know, talking. Um, Cause that's oh, all you wow. can do really. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I, ha- I actually haven't heard that. So, I mean, I've, I'm familiar with Marseille Eliade, but I haven't heard that story in particular about Cora. Um, and I, it sounds to me like anti-pagan and anti-women propaganda to me than it, than it, cause it's, it's more like, oh, she's trying to swallow him up, but he shows her, you know? So, um, I think she's probably more powerful than that if 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 she's representing what she's supposed to represent so yeah i feel that i feel like uh these sacred teachings of the matriarchal uh mystic mystical rites uh have been demonized and and uh obfuscated by the catholic church for ages and they still live strong amongst amongst the uh the witches 
and the pagans. Right. Um, yeah, you know, they, they're just still being ostracized, but they're still out there. And it's interesting. There's still like one of the heretical groups I find so fascinating are called the Goliamites. And the Goliamites believed that Christ had come again, but this time as a woman. And that mm. as Jesus was the incarnation of the Son, um, she was the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. And then they also had um, a female pope, and it's connected actually to the first tarot card, uh, the um, Shanti tarot deck. Ooh, see, now you're getting into our stuff. This is what we like. Right here. This is <laughs> it's really fascinating stuff. I, I love the Goliath. So, so even like these people were Catholic, um, but yet they had this view that, well, God must come as a woman. If God comes as a man, God must come as a woman. And And the understanding that there needs to be a female pope too. And then they also had... 12 cardinals, six male, six female, you know, so they did a lot to try to balance, um, balance gender. So it's not just paganism, it's like humans. We know that we need male and female, you know, so, so when you only have the male, you want that correction and you want that, um, response to it. And so, yeah, I, I suggest you look into the Gilliamites. I think you'll find them fascinating. Gilliamites. Is it Gilliamites or Gilliamites? So I spelled it. So it's a woman named Goyama of Milan. Is it G U L or G L? U G. But it is like a, I Google. think it's yeah. It's been a while, but but they they were at the end of the 13th century in Milan, um, mm. and yeah, they're incredibly fascinating. Incredibly <laughs> fascinating. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I know um, the Holy Spirit was originally known as the Baba, and the Hebrews changed it to Abba, um, having the same letters in it. They equated it as the same word, but the Abba refers to the Heavenly Father. However, Baba referred to Mother Nature, or the Sacred Mother. And so they, they kind of obfuscated those teachings that the Holy Spirit was supposed to be the Sacred Mother. And you have a lot of like in Gnostic texts and other texts, but they still refer to the Holy Spirit as female or the Holy Mother or something like that. So, again, it's not, it's, I mean, you still have the father and son. So you've got two males as opposed to, you know, a more balanced kind of thing. But at least there is this understanding of the, the Holy Spirit as feminine and being a mother that you need a mother as well. Um, and again, even within Christianity, uh, that's there. So it's not like, and there's plenty of feminist forms of Christianity, at least today. You know, there's plenty of feminist forms of Christianity and more egalitarian versions. So it doesn't have to be either or. But certainly in the Middle Ages, most of them felt very emphatically that it could only, that if you suggested, um, you know, as as uh, one figure said, a uh, woman taught once and look what happened, like referring to Eve. So we have to make sure that women never teach again. Um, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> That's kind of, yeah. yeah, there was a strong uh, presence of uh, powerful females in, in the uh, Bible originally. Uh, the wife of El Shaddai being Asherat, um, the sacred mother, um, goddess, and part of the sacred union. Um, she, her name has been translated in the Bible now uh, as the sacred tree of life or the rock or foundation or sometimes Jerusalem. But her name was originally there, um, and so it's been hidden. Also, we got Mary Magdalene um, being demonized as a whore, um, whereas uh, the the word high priest was then changed to and obfuscated by a temple prostitute uh, later. Um, But Mary Magdalene was said to have a very prominent role, and some people consider her the 13th disciple 
but mm-hmm. she might have uh, had equal standing with Jesus um, being in a scene. And she also um, had powerful um, knowledge of mysticism. Um, and we spoke with Freddie Silva uh, a week or two ago, and he mentioned that uh, she might have administered the sacred rite to Jesus with the pufferfish poison, uh, putting him into a coma for three days and then reawakening him with an antidote, um, having been uh, resurrected, so to speak, in a figurative sense. But she was the one orchestrating that ritual with him. And so it might have been her that he was taking lead from in a lot of ways. And so she's kind of been kind of uh, like obfuscated in this whole situation of the patriarchy um, changing the story mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But I feel, I feel like she was very powerful. They also know her as the, the woman in red. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is known as the Apostolorum, the Apostle of the Apostles, because she's the one who delivers the good news. She's the one who delivers that uh-huh. Jesus isn't really dead. Um, or he is dead, but he was dead, but he has risen. Um, and all of the Gospels agree that she's the one uh, to share that message in some way first, which shows that that was so central to Christian teachings. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't try to write something different in those stories. So, yeah, I mean, when she gets you know, portrayed as a, a repentant prostitute, um, that's the easiest way to discredit women in, in patriarchy is to call them a whore, you know, so... Um, she clearly was a very, very powerful, important follower of Jesus. And you can even see it in the Bible. I mean, there, there are other texts out there. There's the gospel of Mary Magdalene. I don't know if you yeah. read that, but, um, so you, you, and you can see in the, in, um, the gospel of Philip, which is another Gnostic text. It's really, you know, asking why, why Mary is the favorite, um, that clearly, clearly she played a central role, but yeah, I'm not, I, again, the, the evidence to me doesn't suggest necessarily the pufferfish poison and all those things but <laughs> but uh again just because there's not the evidence doesn't mean it didn't happen and and like one of the things one of you were asking earlier is like to what extent is there truth in this well what is truth right yeah. and and how do we know what what truth is so so there can be meaning that's deeper than fact um you know f- faith isn't about facts uh it, and that doesn't mean you know it's lies or something like that it but there, and that's one of the things I appreciate so much about um, the Hebrew Bible and the, the the way there are so many versions of a story, because it's not just the one, the literal thing that happened. There are just always going to be different ways of getting at the truth, which is deeper than one surface um, message. And that's again, like what I appreciate about the parables is, okay, think for yourself, break free of of the the rational ways of thinking, and come to new solutions but that's not the way that like john can handle it john is saying no there is one right answer my answer and if you're not conforming to what i have to say um but again i wouldn't i wouldn't say patrick is necessarily that guy that's you know um trying to destroy women or uh, i mean he did want to end paganism he did he because he believed that christianity was the the right way but um that his approach to Christianity and I'll, I'll email to Roman and Roman can share it with you. They, you know, that when those young women are asking Patrick, okay, tell me about your God. And he answers with, well, look to the stars and the moon and the river and and all that stuff so that you can see that kind of, that is, I think maybe a closer link to what was important to pagans. Um, But again, we hear about it in a Christian text about a Christian converting pagan. So it's just so hard to know what, but it is interesting to me 
that it's coming from women too, you know, that yeah. he's with women there. So I would love to see that. Um, they say sometimes that uh, when the um, Christians usurp a lot of the teachings of others, they use it as bait to reel them in sometimes. And in order to trap people, you have to use some bait of the truth to pull them into your lives a lot of times. And we see that happening a lot, time and time again, to Christians. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, lies, again, it could be, like, different interpretations, you know? I mean, I it it, it could be deliberate deceptions, too. It's hard to know. It's hard to know. I try to take the Discordian approach, where everything is true, false, and nonsense, mm-hmm. and every combination of the three. Um, because, you know, there's the paradox, just because something is false doesn't mean it's not half true. Right. And a lot of times that's the case. And uh, Hermes said that all truths are half false. Mm-hmm. So you can find a lot of power through the paradox that way. Um, one of the things about the story of uh, Jesus being um, put through a ritual, um, a mock crucifixion, for me, helps me understand that there is a lost history that he actually went back to Kashmir as the um, the leader of the lost tribe of, of Israel in Kashmir, where he supposedly is in a shrine there with the Book of Isa, who is known as there. But if he had a mock crucifixion and then he also was exiled and went back to Kashmir, that kind of makes every story come together and be like one like golden weave through a, like a bigger tapestry. Mm. But, you know, you have to be open-minded about these things and always learn because there's so much more to find. Right. Right. And especially with history, we are we have very limited uh, evidence. So we we don't know. As, as one of the things I will frequently say, um, history isn't the past. It's our interpretation of the past based on the available evidence. And we only yes. have some evidence, and that evidence comes from the powerful primarily. So, I love uh, that. Me too. Do you think there's any connection between the Essenes and the Knights Templar and their teachings and following of Sophia? Do you believe that they followed the teachings of Sophia? No, I, 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 think, I think the Essenes are fascinating. Um, I think like Sophia to me is a much more intellectual approach. I do not see the Templars as intellectuals. Um, they, they're not, they're not known for that. They're warriors. First and foremost, they're, they're warrior monks who are also bankers. They're, they're not, they're not running the universities or they're not being, you know, hermits and reflecting on things. There is, you know, one of the things that's accused of them is that they're, um, worshiping baphomet but there's this this there's no evidence for that i think i think more what probably led apart from philip the fourth wanting their money which is really what i think is why they're attacked um i think why did they make they were easy targets because they hadn't won the holy land back and they had a whole bunch of money because they were bankers for christendom because who better to trust warriors who are also monks Right. So they had all this money and they had failed in winning the Holy Land back for Christ. And in addition to failing to win the Holy Land back for Christ, they got along with the Muslims sometimes and they weren't supposed to get along with the Muslims. They were supposed to kill the Muslims. So so like this, you know, accusing them of worshiping Baphomet also comes from like their accusers not understanding Islam and and projecting all sorts of like, oh, we'll say this about them. And we'll say, I, I mean, I, I really do. I, I don't know it was that, uh, that they were that aware that they were making shit up. But I think to a large <laughs> extent, they knew 
this is what's going to get them, you know? And so like one of the things they accused them of was um, having anal sex with each other all the time. And this, you know, now we can have a more two people on a horse. Yeah. To have the, like, like there's being gay is not a problem. You know, it's not, it's nothing to shame someone for. They weren't accusing them of being gay. They were accusing them of having anal sex and, and other kinds of things. It's a, it's a different kind of thing, but they absolutely thought being gay was like one of the worst things that you could do or having anal sex was one of the most depraved things you were going to do. And was there gay sex that was happening among nights? There's gay sex that happens among people in all sorts of places. Who knows? You know, but, but it didn't matter. Was it actually happening? It mattered. This is how we can get people to hate them. That this is how we can get people to turn on them because they have been so powerful for so long, but we can say why they really lost is because they're worshiping demons and they're having sex with each other rather than, you know, honoring Christ. Um, so I think, you know, while there's like claims, like they were worshiping Baphomet, I don't think they were worshiping Baphomet or Sophia. Um, while there's claims that they were having sex with the, I think people have sex with each other in all sorts of situations. And who am I to judge? I wasn't there. I don't know. But the, the proof isn't that they said that the proof is that like, they knew that that was going to discredit them. And that's why they said it, not because they were actually having sex with each other. Yeah, I feel like that was probably for ridicule because the Romans were known to have like had anal sex for fun, like through the Greco-Roman period, it was very standardized for them. So for them to say that to anyone else is very hypocritical. Right. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, but among the Catholics, because they were saying like having any sex is bad. But if you're going to have sex, it should only be between one man and one woman who are married to each other for having kids and they shouldn't like it, you know, and so like all other kinds of sex are bad sex and and uh anal sex is considered to be pretty much the worst they couldn't even think of lesbianism basically so they they couldn't even throw that accusation around too much because they didn't even think those ways but um i mean there certainly were lesbians in history and people were aware of that happening oh, but yeah. that's not an accusation get gets used the same way as as male um homosexuality so you know, with everything the catholic priests have been doing i mean they should not be the ones talking <laughs> right. right um yeah. Okay. Yeah, right uh, I, I did have a, a last question, but I forgot what it was. But uh, I was going to say, like, the, the, the Stone of Destiny, uh, Jacob's Pillow. Uh, they're so they're, that's like another connection between the, the Hebrew Bible and Ireland, uh, seeing as they, that stone was transferred and, and set up. And that's where they started uh, crowning kings on, on Mount Tara. So. Uh, that's, I think that's also another very interesting connection of this uh, Hebrew-Irish connection. So that's kind of, there's there's a lot of things that all take you back to Ireland when you start looking into like the Hebrew stuff. So uh, I just find it pretty fascinating. Whether or not it's true or not, I don't know, but that's why I keep researching the stuff I research to find more connections. Um, but it's been really great having you here, Maeve. Uh, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, can do you want to tell people where they can find your book, what you have going on, and any kind of links or anything like that? YouTube's, TikToks, whatever you got going yeah. on. <laughs> well, thank thank you very much for for having having me on your podcast. I've enjoyed speaking with all of you as well, and and hearing like I've learned things today as well. Um, I'm not really a social media kind of person, so I'm, I'm uh, not, uh, I don't have a TikTok uh, uh, That was account. a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
um, or or YouTube's, but. Um, unfortunately, like my rec- my more recent book, The Sacred Sisters, is so ridiculously overpriced. It's like it's over a hundred dollars, over a hundred wow. euros, over a hundred pounds. It's just ridiculous. It's a, it's a, the the marketing scheme that they have um, for those kind of books. I think it's really unfortunate because I wrote that not just for people who can afford to pay so much for one book, which is obviously only libraries can do that. So that's uh, Sacred Sisters is unfortunately very hard to find, but the Templars, the Witch and the Wild Irish you can find. Um, I mean, you can find both of them on Amazon, I'm sure, but like, again, Sacred Sisters, who's going to pay that kind of money? Um, whereas the Templars, the Witch and the Wild Irish um, is available uh, in paperback and hardcover, uh, Kindle, Um but yeah, and then I'm I'm working on uh, another book right now, looking at the intersections of uh, religion and racism from essentially the Norman conquest of England to the Statutes of Kilkenny in 1366. So uh, stay tuned on that one, I guess. Okay. Right. So Amazon, you don't have a website or anything or um, other no. like that. So, no. all right. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much for being here. We appreciate your time, and thanks for going a little overtime with us today, too. Normally, we do about two hours, so thank you uh, for hanging out with us a little bit longer. And um, thanks, Indy, for joining me also. And uh, Glad to be here. Thank you, Five Tribe, for listening, and wake up.